Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Hey, it's a gorgeous day outside, isn't it? This outside today looks like what being a Chiefs fan feels like today, right? And I haven't heard from Jimmy Cook because he's still in. I think he's been. Do we know Eddie? Was he sequestered for his jury duty? I do not know. I was in uh, communication with him yesterday, and he would not indulge on innocent or guilty. I, I believe that's divulge, right? Sure, you're probably right. Yeah. Welcome to English class. I was an English major. Thank I know you, you were. I mean, until I saw the math that was involved, and then I had to switch majors. But uh, good afternoon to you on a Tuesday that feels like a Thursday. My name is Jake Query. You just heard the voice of Brendan King, who is wearing the Panthers jersey that came free with his allegiance that he signed up for in April. And a Panthers <laughs> fan, that's cool. Uh, Eddie Garrison here as well. It is Query and Company here on... This is always a busy time of year. Because we've got basketball, college basketball yesterday, big win for Purdue, nice win for Indiana. Alan Karpik will join us to talk about the Purdue side of things coming up at 1230. Mike DeCourcy to talk college basketball at 1 o'clock. Stephen Holder will join us at 2 o'clock. And I have a feeling that Stephen, the conversation will be largely about that of which I'm going to lead today. This will not air until later tonight. I know that Andrea Kramer joined Kevin and Andy on the wake-up call. But I do think that a big top talking point for a lot of people at the Thanksgiving dinner table is going to be the Jim Irsay interview that will air tonight on Real Sports on HBO, but HBO has already sent out preview of a few of the things that Jim Irsay talks about in their interview. And one of those being, he is very candid, is Jim Irsay, and to his credit, he has been for a while now, about his addiction problems. He, and I'll see if Eddie can can fire it up here, the audio that, that already has been sent out by HBO, where Jim Mercer talks about, and Stephen Holder, I think, caught some, to use a Ted Lasso term, he caught some gruff for this, uh, or guff for this, in saying that, Stephen Holder was like, you know, I'd been hurt, you know, been trying to get this confirmed forever. And there is some truth to that. I, I have mentioned as well, and, and it's neither here nor there of now, like, this is going to come off the wrong way. But Jim Irsay in his interview with Andrea Kramer, um, which HBO Real Sports yesterday sent a sample of the interview. And we'll see if we can play a, a snippet of that with Jim Irsay, where he talked about the fact that through the course of his addiction, he overdosed to the point of coding. And coding meaning he flatlined. And I recall three or four, it's been more than that, probably four years ago, um, someone very close to Irsay telling me that that had been the case. And you can't report something like that without that person confirming it. I mean, you get into HIPAA laws in a lot of different areas. And part of it, too, is because of the fact that Jim Irsay is a beloved figure, you you can't drag one through the mud or you have to be respectful of how people are going to receive it. But this was Jim Irsay in an interview that will air tonight, 
previously done over the course of a six-day following by HBO Real Sports. Jim Irsay talking to Andrea Kramer. Here you go. How many times did you go into rehab? Oh, God, at least 15 times. Have you actually ever overdosed? Oh, yeah. One time I I was trying to detox myself, um, and I I mixed, uh, you know, multiple drugs that, that, that I didn't know anything about. And so all of a sudden I start slurring my words and then um, cold blue, I stopped breathing. And they revived me and the doctor goes, um, Jim, you're one lucky man because I had signed virtually the death certificate. So that's Jim Mercer. Now here is the, here's the thing. There are two avenues in which I think can can kind of spawn off of that quote from Jim Irsay. And I want to be very clear. I think that Jim Irsay realizes or recognizes or simply thinks that telling his story may help other people. And I commend that with a total tip of the cap. And while I don't know Jim Irsay intimately, obviously, or or well, I mean, I, I... it would be disingenuous to say that I have that kind of rapport with him. Um, I, I have no reason to think anything other than he is a well-intended person. But he is a person who has his demons, as he talks about in the interview. And he further elaborates in, as I I mean, I do know this, he goes into detail as to what could have been the genesis of some of those addictions. Aside from his father's addiction, you, you see this a lot. Jim Mercer, and he's never talked a lot about this. I mean, I've talked about it on the, on the air before in terms of the story of the Ursay family, but Jim Mercer had a sister who was fatally injured in a car accident. He also had a brother that was, that had, you, you know, disabilities. But Bob Ursay initially was going to get into the arena of owning an NFL team. His initial vision was to to buy a team and leave it to his daughter to have her become the first minority owner in the NFL. That was the vision initially. But the daughter was fatally injured in a car accident even before his sale or his purchase, I should say, of the then Los Angeles Rams became official. And then when he bought the Rams, he swapped the teams with Carol Rosenblum and got the Baltimore Colts. But it goes into very heavy detail about how that accident involving Jim Irsay's sister was a boulder in the stream not only for the trajectory of his father's life and his father's lifestyle, but also the fashion and the manner in which the family reacted to that having great impact on Jim Irsay. And I think it's very illuminating as to a lot of the things that Jim Irsay deals with today. Those things with which he deals, like, for example, the incident of him overdosing, in no way, shape, or form is it applicable, relevant, or in any way, shape, or form probably even deemed worthy of people in the media saying, well, yeah, we'd heard about that, but couldn't get it verified. That looks like almost a jealousy that, like, finally Andrea Kramer was able to get that confirmed. It's not that. It's more so this. That sheds light, then, on why, when we in the media find different areas about sports figures that we we try to pursue oftentimes we can get told repeatedly either that's not your business or that's not that is not relevant and so we're not going to confirm that so therefore it can't be reported and then you find out after the fact well yes in fact that was true so that leads one to then 
pursue the credence or the ver- the the justification of other things that that you hear or that you report on and that you can never necessarily totally rule out any storyline on things but all of that said and I don't want this to come off like I am piling on Jim Irsay but when he talks about and in the interview he also sheds light on the woman that he was affiliated with who overdosed in a home that he had purchased for her is that our business? Probably not, except for the following. Somewhat, I do think it's our business only in this area. The home, and this is my understanding, I don't want to say this as factual, but this is my understanding. The home that that woman had overdosed in, and it's terribly sad that the woman overdosed, and that's the overriding story. I get that, that someone lost their life, and someone lost a daughter and a friend and, and whatever else. But the home in which that happened was a home that was purchased through funding of a foundation that did, as I understand it, have public subsidy. But more important than that, when it comes to Jim Ursay, while yes, he is an individual just like me, just like you, Brennan, just like Eddie, the reality is that Jim Ursay is the sole owner and executive in with every final decision of a professional sports franchise that he does a wonderful job of allowing to be a part of the community. But that franchise is also very heavily publicly subsidized. And because a great deal of his wealth is predicated upon the the value of a franchise playing inside of a building that not only is subsidized by the people of Indianapolis, but part of that subsidy goes back directly into the pocketbook of Jim Irsay, that does in turn create a responsibility to the people that are paying that, that they can feel confident that the direction of the franchise is in fact where they want it to be. And I don't think that, that it's not, but it does. That's why and I give him credit for being transparent. But when people say his addiction is none of our business, I totally understand that from a personal side of things. But when one's wealth is partially based upon the public contribution, then their well-being does in fact become public interest. And that's why this story is one that probably will create a lot of ripple. In addition to that, I think it will have some ripple throughout the National Football League for two reasons. Number one, when talking about his arrest, he said that his arrest was not because he was impaired, but because there is a prejudice against rich white billionaires. In a league where you have a lot of players that have been outspoken about their perception of bias against in the judicial system against young African Americans, that may have some ripple effect. And I think the Colts are aware that that, you know, in in the fact that that could be the case. And then secondly, I do think that Jim Irsay, as I've talked about before, is an owner that while it's great for the people of Indianapolis and fans of the Colts, his transparency and his acceptance and his embracing being a spokesperson for fellow owners of the National Football League, at times I think owners like that when he takes a stand against Daniel Snyder, when he takes a stand against like the franchise tag and running backs and things like that, I do think that there are owners that are like, heck yeah, we'll let Ursay be the, the, the voice of it. That's cool. I'm cool with that. Let him fall on that sword. But 
I do think there are also owners within the league that have a little bit of resentment rooted in jealousy to an extent of Jim Irsay of the fact that while it is true of other owners, it's not true of the majority of owners, that Jim Irsay inherited his franchise as a, and while he worked at every level of it from the bottom up, he this is the only the football is the only job that he's held and i think there are other owners that resent that and are jealous of that and as a result of that would be ready to pile on in him when vulnerability is shown and in this case the double-edged sword is from a fan standpoint i think it's wonderful that vulnerability is shown from a competitor's standpoint i think there are other owners that may eventually roll their eyes at that but nonetheless i think it will be a captivating thing for people to watch tonight i mean that's all incredible and i'm looking forward to watching the interview too let me ask you this you brought up something about robert ursay and wanting to lay the team for his daughter now i realize that jim ursay exclusively has daughters but carly ursay gordon does her eventual probably ownership of the team spin from robert ursay's goal as you said to give a minority ownership to his daughter intended excellent point and and theoretically yes one of the curveballs that comes with that and this is way cart before the horse right but one of the things that i have always found fascinating it is it is my understanding i remember a few years ago when the colts were in england and when the colts were in england all of the media that was there i was not one of those but all of the media that was there were went to a dinner put on by the colts at one of the palaces there and which was wonderful. I mean, very cool, right? And I remember, and I'm not going to say any names and throw anybody under the bus here, but I remember talking to one of the media members that said, oh, it was wonderful because I got to meet, you know, chat with Ursay, and then I met Ursay's fiance and the fiance's little boy. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I go, Jim Ursay's engaged? Well, yes, I met the, now, the, I don't think that that relationship ended up in a marriage. Was right? this 2016? Was that what it was? Whatever year they went to England, yeah. I think 16. And so I go, okay. And I said, well, so did you inquire about like, the, like when is he getting married? And the person said, well, I don't know. That's really not any of my business. And I, I would agree with that except for the following. When Jim Ursay, Robert Ursay was married to Jim Ursay's mother, that marriage dissolved and Robert Ursay late in life remarried. When Robert Ursay passed away, the football team, the Indianapolis Colts, was left in if not in totality, in majority, to his second wife. Hmm. And Jim Mersey had to go to court. It, it wasn't a long, drawn-out court process proceeding, but Jim Mersey was able to acquire 100% ownership of the Indianapolis Colts, not through direct inheritance, but rather through having to settle through court against his, mother, his stepmother. Understandable, and pro- I mean, that's, that's their business. I get that. But my point being... Whenever you have, and I'm not saying this to pick on Jim Mercer, no matter who it is, whether it's the owner of the Florida Panthers or the owner of the Seattle Seahawks or the owner of the Utah Jets, whatever it is, any major corporation, when you have, I, I know personally people that, like I have a really, one of my best friends in the world, his his grandparents, one of his two grandparents passes away, the surviving grandparent remarries like a year later. And six months after that passes unexpectedly, and lo and behold, had like changed the will to leave like everything to the new wife. Hmm. 
And, and it's like, well, wait a minute. What about, you know, well, I mean, they're gone now. What do you do in that situation? So those things become very tricky. By all account and for all intent and purposes, yes, I believe that the three daughters are obviously going to inherit the Colts. And that and hopefully that's 30 years from now. You know what right, I mean? Yeah. But as I've talked about with the Pacers, I, Brendan, when you get into taxes and things like that, I mean, Katie barred the door. I mean, that's, that's probably conversation um, in that aspect, but it's a, a brilliant point by you theoretically by design yes in fact it may not have been in the manner in which robert ursay had envisioned but in fact the indianapolis colts will eventually seemingly be run by a female now that won't be the first though ironically enough it was the rams that carol rosenblum that Bob Ursay, when Bob Ursay purchased the Rams with design for his daughter to eventually be an owner, and again, those proceedings began while she was still living. The sale didn't go through until after she had passed, but he swapped the franchises with the Rosenblums, who then sold the team, either sold the team or the, or passed the team to Georgia Frontier, who, who was the St. Louis Rams owner when they won the Super Bowl, and so she was the she was the owner and chairman emeritus, chairperson emeritus of the franchise. So that was the first, I think, I think she was the first majority female owner in the NFL. I could be wrong in that, but I, I remember when I worked in St. Louis, it was a big deal. And Georgia Frontier, one of the, on a side note, when the Rams won the Super Bowl in St. Louis, every St. Louis media member got a Super Bowl ring. And I did wow. find it kind of weird yeah. that, I mean, that was they had won the Super Bowl like two months before I arrived in St. Louis, but I always found it kind of weird that like you'd go to a Rams game to cover it and like the this the sports director at one of the TV stations is wearing a big Rams Super Bowl ring. <laughs> it's the same variation as the players? It was a it was the it was the same design, but like seventy yeah. percent the size, right? But then you go into the locker room. I've always felt this funny, Brennan, about Super Bowls in general. If you've ever been to a Super Bowl, and I don't know if you have, but if if, you, if you haven't, I would strongly encourage it because it's a it is an absolute circus. It's something that I've been fortunate enough to do three or four times. It doesn't necessarily mean I need to do it again because it's just it's a circus, but it is fascinating. But one of the things about the Super Bowl that I always found amusing, I remember being at the Super Bowl thirty four in Atlanta, where the Rams won actually, and I was covering that Super Bowl just not yet for St. Louis, but. I'm I'm in the hotel in Atlanta, and I remember like Joe Montana. There was some sort of an event going on, and Joe Montana and I can't. It might have been Bob Greasy were there, mm. and they're not wearing any. You know, they're wearing no jewelry other than like a wedding ring, right? And then you see like some balding sixty-five year old <laughs> fat guy, and he's got on like rings on three fingers, yeah. and you're like, "Who's that?" And it's like that's the backup snapper for the eighty and eighty-four rate, eighty-three <laughs> Raiders, and you're like, "Okay, yeah. yeah, you know that's how it works, right?" Yeah. Um, but yeah, like so, and I know that when the Colts won the Super Bowl, remember Jim Irsay? That was kind of when the Colts won the Super Bowl, and I think that that I think the Colts winning the Super Bowl went a long way in two things for Jim Irsay. Number one being I think it solidified Jim Mercer's relationship with the city of Indianapolis. And I think it also, it gave him a new high. And mm. I don't mean that flippantly at all. I mean that in a positive. I think that, the, that seeing his team win and the pursuit of that victory and the high that it created, that then became his focus and his obsession of, I want to feel that again. And that supplanted the need for him to have a high that was created artificially. 
And I think that that was a, a really good step in getting him to the direction of where he is now. But if you remember when the Colts won the Super Bowl, that was when Ursay came out on Monument Circle dressed up like Willy Wonka and came up with the whole like scavenger hunt through the city for fans to get themselves a ring. And, you know, they gave a ring to like basically everybody in the organization. I mean, which is cool, right? In variations. I mean, they didn't all get the size of a, of a player ring, but you had a lot of you know, everything from the person that worked in the cafeteria at the facility to parking, whatever else, everybody got some variation of a ring. Yeah, this is not even close to being the same thing, considering that's the Super Bowl and this is minor league baseball. But the South Bend Cubs, we've won two championships in the last three seasons. Everybody in the organization got a ring. Now, the actual rings were the same size as the Cubs World Series ring, but there was a different variation given to the ticket takers and the hot dog salesmen and uh, the the fun zone area people. So, yeah, kind of the same thing happened in South Bend, and, too. So I would imagine that as a broadcaster, like you got a ring, but it was probably one the one size down. No, right? I actually got a player ring. Did you really? Yeah. And, and it's where? At home. How often do you wear it? Exclusively at weddings. Okay. Or a team event. I could see you wearing a team, it event. A team event. Yeah, right? or like going to – we got them at spring training each of the years. So you go to a game, a Cubs spring training game, and you still have it on. So you got to go to the Scottsdale bars with it on. So you kind of got to protect yourself. But. So wait a minute. So this – and it's the South Bend Cubs, right? Yeah. And they are what level? High A for the Chicago Cubs. So pardon my naivete here, Brandon. Yeah. So high A One is, step below double A. Okay, so there's so part again part no, of my ignorance good. is there A and then high A? Yeah, so there's the low A team in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Okay, there's us. There's the double A team in Knoxville, Tennessee, and there's the triple A team in Des Moines, Iowa. Okay, and then what? How many players that you have done at high A level have played in Wrigley? Ooh, that's a good question. I want to say by now that I have been with yes, at least fifteen. Okay, so pretty good. So, I mean, now is that because of, because they were, you, you know, the, the, they were drafted and that was designed to be that way or because yeah. they had a turnover of the way that they're doing things and thus guys were moved up at the end of the year? Yeah, I think it's a good mix. I mean, Justin Steele, who was a Cy Young candidate, candidate this year, um, I had him when he was a 20 year old kid and um, he struggled really at April and then now he's a Cy Young candidate. Well, you know, that happens a lot, right? Yeah. Like a guy either has a lot of velocity, but he has no control. No, no command. Or he has great great command, but no velocity. You know what I yeah. mean? So it takes a while for guys to figure out both those things, yeah, right? Yeah, zero command. But then there's guys like Chris Morrell who had played outfield this year for the Cubs that just raked with us. And then uh, just two years ago, we had Pete Crow Armstrong, the number one prospect for the Cubs and he made his debut this year came over in the Javi Baez deal from the Mets so it definitely varies uh yesterday did you watch Indiana and Louisville I did catch it did you watch much of Purdue Gonzaga I caught the second half uh, I thought an interesting right tale yeah. of two halves for Purdue certainly for Indiana kind of the same Indiana went with something a little unconventional um you know Mike Woodson looks around and goes well finally I guess I'll do it. and and they went to the zone and that probably was the difference uh Indiana had a lead kind of surrendered it went to that zone and that closed it out against Louisville and then Purdue I thought really strong because with Purdue obviously you're, you're this is the time of year sometimes I think this time of year that the wins you accumulate can really help you I don't know necessarily that losses hurt you as much except for that you are missing out on the opportunity we all know it on selection Sunday they put up the banner of the team. They flash it on the screen. 
quality wins, you know, negative losses, big wins. This is the time to collect quality wins, and Purdue did exactly that yesterday, and Alan Karpik joins us next to tell us how they did it. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Later tonight, it will be Purdue and the Volunteers of Tennessee. After Purdue last night, dispatching of the Gonzaga Bulldogs with a 10-point win, 73-63. That Tennessee game, by the way, Ryan Klein just hit another three. I think anytime you talk about, as a matter of fact, Admiral Schofield was got in garbage time minutes for the Orlando Magic on Sunday, and I look and I go, man, that guy looks familiar. And I'm, oh my gosh, that's Admiral Schofield, the guy from Tennessee that was the focus of that NCAA tournament. Some great games, that great game between Purdue and Tennessee, but they're going to reconvene that rivalry, if you want to call it that, tonight at 8 o'clock. But joining us now to talk about what the Boilers did yesterday, Alan Karpik is, of course, with the On3 Network, goldenblack.com, where you know his work. And, Alan, I'll begin with this. Kind of a tale of two halves for the Boilers, where they dug down in the second half and really kind of asserted themselves against Gonzaga. What things did they do differently in half number two versus when they got off to the slower start against the Zags? Well, I think, and Matt Painter said it post-game last night, you know, the Zags missed shots. I mean, that's as simple as that. And, again, and I know Purdue fans sometimes get tired of hearing that about Purdue's uh, failure in the NCAA tournament last the last couple of years. They just can't make shots. That was a little bit of that. I thought Lance Jones was just uh, the, the difference maker. I think Purdue sped the game up a little bit, uh, which is something they can do with Lance Jones. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden, that game turned for Purdue. But, you know, it really came down to, yes, Purdue did some good things defensively, but uh, uh, Gonzaga also, you know, while they hit some threes in the first half, or they hit, what, six of them, I think, in the first half, uh, they just uh, could not uh, buy one in the second half and allowed Purdue to, to run past them. Hey, Alan, it's Brendan. I know this was a year ago, but still, it's back-to-back wins and back-to-back years by double digits over Gonzaga and what that program is to the West Coast. So what does that just say about the Boilers and what they've been able to do in the non-conference the last few years? Well, it's really impressive. I mean, gosh, they haven't lost a non-conference game, what, in three years since they lost uh, lost uh, to Miami. This is a uh, – it is impressive. And, I, and, and, you know, I understand it's November, and I understand it's not March, but uh, you can't minimize. you got to play the games when you play them, and Purdue has played very well. Uh, if you think about their meteoric meteoric rise last year to number one when they weren't even ranked, right, before the season or where they were at the very bottom of the rankings. And, of course, two years ago with Jaden Ivey, they did the same thing. They didn't have to rise as far, but they got to number one. Uh, you know, if you look at the six, now seven teams they've played in these quote-unquote Thanksgiving feast week type tournaments, it's a pretty impressive murderer's role of college basketball, and Purdue has at least for now navigated it. Now, if they get two more, uh, it'll be really impressive because tonight against Tennessee and then potentially uh, it doesn't matter who they play. Uh, actually, Wednesday night, Marquette or, or Kansas are going to be tremendous uh, struggles for <coughs> excuse me for any team, especially Purdue. Alan, I look at Fletcher, uh, Fletcher Lawyer, okay? He doesn't hit a shot yesterday. He goes 0 for 6, 0 for 3 from three-point range. Gets a couple free throws, leaves with two points. I think there are a lot of people that would look at that and go, ooh, that's of concern. Now, 
As I said yesterday, this is Thanksgiving week, so I'm going to be thankful for things. I'm an optimist, Alan. You know this. We've done radio. On the, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an yeah. optimist, right? So I here's here's that. my optimistic viewpoint, and then I want you to, in high school debate class fashion, tell me why I'm wrong <laughs> or right, okay? It's good news for Purdue that they can win games at this point and find out how to do it without contribution from Fletcher Lawyer because he got out to a great start a year ago. And then when the freshman wall kind of hit, I think they were kind of left wondering where they pick up those pieces that he'd left behind. So to have guys like Jones or Colvin that can pick up scoring slack on the wings when Lawyer has an off night, it is good for Purdue to see that and learn that now as opposed to having to deal with the shock of it later in the year. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and again, Fletcher Lawyer is a good basketball player. He's not, uh, he played, played relatively well in the first three games, uh, shot the ball well. I, and if there's more to it, I think, Jake, than just him shooting the ball well and what he contributes, but he's got to make shots. And if he doesn't, I think the difference for Purdue this year a little bit more, or definitely more than last year, is, yeah, Miles Colvin is going to be in the lineup, and he's going to play. And uh, and uh, they don't. And, and you're going to find Lance Jones, even though Lance Jones is already starting, playing more. So Matt Painter's got a lot of options. Uh, Fletcher Lawyer, you know, they, as Matt Painter always says, guys don't try to miss shots uh, uh, intentionally. But, yeah, he needs to make shots, and he knows that. Uh, he is a guy that, uh, no question last year, especially the last half of the Big Ten season, really struggled. And when you go back to what Purdue's demise was last year in the tournament, uh, you can call a lot of things, but when you can't make three-point shots, five for 26, uh, it's going to hurt you. And uh, Purdue made enough of them yesterday in the second half and still also, really, you know, Zach Eady, it's almost hilarious to say this, but Zach Eady had a, had a relatively average performance shooting the basketball last night. Um, and yet Purdue would still be able to beat one of the best uh, programs in the country by double digits. It's nice to say that he had an average shooting performance, Alan, <laughs> when, he, when he shot 50%, 8 of 16. But has, has he gotten better, I mean, is, if that's even possible? Talk about his start to the season because, of course, there was a lot talked about with him coming back and what NIL would need to do or if he went to the NBA draft. But has has he continued to improve? Is that even possible? You know, that's a good question. I think teams know how to defend him or, or know how to try to defend him. And certainly Gonzaga did some of that yesterday in the first half, uh, pushing him out. And, and, you know, you go back to the tournament well, this year or last year at this time, and he was absolutely dominant. He still is. Is he better? I, I don't know. He hasn't shot the ball as well as you call that shooting. He hasn't made as many close-in shots for a number of reasons. Uh, again, 8 of 16 when he could have easily and self-admitted. He's very hard on himself. He, he mentioned post-game last night. You know, man, I should have been 12 of 13 out of 16. Well, then you then then could say he's definitely gotten better. I think he is better because he's, a, he's actually a leader. Uh, I think Purdue has also better because they played well without him last night. Trey Kaufman-Wren, who did struggle in the first half, aired a couple threes or aired one three early in the game, came in and hit three. Uh, I think it was two or three shots in the lane when Edie was out, when Purdue really was able to get the lead to where it wanted. That's the difference. And I don't know that he's going to be able to beat last year's numbers. I think if you're Purdue, you're maybe not even sure you'll want him to. You need to have that flexibility 
to, to make sure you get other guys on the court a little bit. Now, ADL played over 30 minutes yesterday, and he'll continue to do that. Matt Painter's not stupid, but uh, this is a this is a guy that uh, is continuing to deliver. That guy being Edie, and whether he'll be you know whether he'll become the what the first back to back national player of the year since Ralph Sampson. I, I would if I had to bet, and I don't. But if I did, probably not. But uh, it's just because things tend to work that way. But uh, then again, he may have just as effective a season uh, as he did last year, just in a slightly different way. Alan Carpet Golden Black is our guest. Alan, with Zach Eady's dominance, you know, there's no reason to think that he is going to have a game where he's off. But let's say, for example, if he if he were to foul out of the game, or maybe it, even if let's say he rolls an ankle and has to miss a game in the Big Ten yeah. season, uh, does Purdue have a defined? cast system aside from him in other words if he is not their go-to guy it's late in the game and he's not on the floor do you think they have a very clear understanding amongst one another of who then becomes the guy that everything runs through that's a good question um i think that uh, you know i think trey kaufman ren and his ability to do things around the basket and be effective around the basket if you're looking for a relatively uh easy shot uh, not that those shots in the lane are easy for him, but he's good at it. He might be that guy, but, you know, I, I think that's the thing that's interesting about Lance Jones. You need guys in in, in college basketball, especially, uh, that just play without fear. And I'm not saying Purdue. Purdue played with a little bit of an experience last year in the tournament. That caused them issues, obviously, and maybe caused them to pucker a little bit as a Gene Cady term. But uh, that is – you know, you need guys like that, uh, like Lance Jones. It just seems to put it into another degree and go another another degree up and plays or another gear, I should say. And I think that uh, that can really help you. So, I think it's it's hard to plan when you have a seven four guy that is so dominant and is and plays so differently than anybody in college basketball. Uh, it's probably hard to have a complete uh, a retrofitted uh, plan B, but. I think you've got some weapons that you can do some things differently uh, than you than you do when Edie's on the court. I think Purdue does have some options in a situation. Purdue won't win the national championship this year or get to the Final Four uh, if Zach Edie doesn't play. I think that's pretty clear. But I, I think this is a team that can be very, very competitive without him. Alan Karpik is with us. Alan, pardon my ignorance here, but it, the question, of course, comes up, and you mentioned at the start of this interview that Purdue has struggled in the NCAA tournament. There's no question about that. But just what do the Boilermakers have to do to take these early season starts? And be it's, it's November, teams grow. But what do they have to do to bring this same kind of intensity, beating Gonzaga by 10 or more in back-to-back years and take that to early on in the NCAA tournament? I think you just forget about whatever's happened in the past, and and, and it's a different, you know. These, yeah, as they always say, on use another Gene Cady reference, and that is that these kids don't don't remember what they did last week, let alone now. I'm I know that the, the tournament weighs heavily on 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 guys in this team, but uh, I just think you focus on what you have now. It is a different team. There are three key players that are different than last year when we've talked about uh, uh, certainly uh, Lance, Lance Jones, but also uh, Camden Heidi and Colvin. So this, these are, this is a different team with a little bit different feel to them. I, I just think you've got to keep playing. And, and yes, you ultimately, for any team in the NCAA tournament, you got to make shots. You know, you can't do what Purdue did against Fairleigh Dickinson where you're five for 26. And the three of us, 
the two of you in your broadcast position, and myself and Wes Lafayette, might have been able to hit more shots than Purdue did in that game. Maybe damning us with faint praise. But my point is, you just got to play, and I think that's what uh, Matt Painter said. Just focus on what you can focus on, what you can focus on. Enjoy the ride. The crowds have been unbelievable for Purdue so far in Mackey Arena. Tickets are going for thousands of dollars in the lower arena. It's crazy, and uh, this is a very special team, and 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 it is poised to have a very special year. Alan, which player, if any? so far is showing still the biggest learning curve and adapting to their newest role? That's a good question, but I probably would say Miles Colvin, and only because he he is instant offense. He's learned, uh, you know, he we know he can do that, and he does it well. Uh, we've already seen it in the last two games where when he hit three threes against Xavier and had a couple yesterday that were absolutely daggers. And he doesn't seem to have much of a conscience doing it. He just does it. But he's got to learn to do some things defensively. I think he's doing better in that situation. Uh, but I think that's uh, there's a definite learning curve for him. Uh, I think Lance Jones is good as he, again, kicks it into high gear and, and motorboats his way down the, down the court as fast as any Purdue player I think I've seen since Lewis Jackson in a lot of ways, and he's a lot bigger than Lewis Jackson was. Um, I, I think that, that he's got to also learn, and that just comes a function of playing a shot selection at the right time. He likes to jack up the threes, as Matt Painter says, from Crawfordsville sometimes, and uh, that he, he made them. He made a big one yesterday when Purdue was struggling, but uh, – my point is uh, that those are guys that just still have to learn the system and, and do it. I think Heidi is a guy that's uh, really talented and, and has got, you know, got a good dunk last night on a back cut. Uh, he is a guy that can really help you, uh, and I think he's uh, a guy that we're gonna, you're going to see more of than less down, down the road. But uh, he comes in pretty, pretty mature and ready to go, uh, seems to be relatively seasoned. And his role is – fundamentally different than a Colvin and a, and a Jones. So in fairness to Colvin and Jones, they have, they have more to learn. Boilers 4-0, Tennessee tonight, 8 o'clock, goldenblack.com, where you can read about all of it all season long with Alan Karpik and the gang. Alan, appreciate it. Have a happy Thanksgiving, all right? Yeah, same to you guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate Thanks, Alan. it. Alan Karpik on the hotline. We come back. He mentioned the – opportunity for Zach Eady to be a back-to-back wooden award winner the first since Ralph Sampson that spawns to a fabulous trivia question and I'm willing to put money on this right now for both of you one of my kind gestures I'm going to give you the trivia question on the other side each of you get one guess if you get it right 50 bucks hmm. how about that you're not usually a betting man is that the answer that's not the answer but I'll give you the question next whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. A lot of college basketball discussion. Appreciate Alan Carpet coming on. Mike Corsi will shortly. Stephen Holder are going to be a fabulous conversation at 2 o'clock because uh, the Jim Mercer interview that will air tonight on HBO Real Sports that you know most people at least certainly within the media, have seen the preview of that. So we know what all is in it, and there will be plenty that we will discuss with Jim Irsay's transparency coming up on the show. So here's the trivia question for you guys. I don't even know if it's legal for me to say on the air. Like, like I'm not wagering with you because you don't owe me anything if you're wrong. So I guess it's not gambling. But I and, and I say that I would give you a fabulous cash prize. That also is totally untrue. But I might buy you like a candy bar or something if you get okay. this right. A zero bar? 
A zero bar, that's right, which equates to the amount of money that I'll actually truly So the $50 was pretty deceiving before the break. Yeah, that was all just hearsay. Okay. Uh, Okay. The Wooden Award is given annually to the world or to the best college basketball player. It began in 1977. As Alan Carpick just mentioned, Ralph Sampson of Virginia is the only player to win it in back-to-back years. Okay, but there have been two schools. Do not look, Eddie. Do not Google Wooden Award winners, Brendan. Do not look at. Okay, not. Um, We're clean. I'm going to check your computers to see what you're. Yeah. Uh, I'm watching on us. The YouTube page. Eddie is on. I'm on the YouTube page. I can't turn mine Good around. Good thing we don't have an HR department. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. There are two schools that have won back-to-back Wooden Award winners, Wooden Awards, with two different players. So mm. in other words, there are two schools that can say, we had Wooden Award winners in back-to-back seasons, but it was two different players from our university that did it. What are the two schools? What are the two schools? Uh huh. Name one of the two schools. Name one of the two yes. schools. Eddie, no looking. I'm not. I don't believe you. What? I'm about to take you out of the equation here. <laughs> you have a guess, Eddie? I do, just because they're the most, one of the biggest college basketball programs in the history of college basketball. You have to name it's the out. players, too, but go. Okay, Eddie, who would <laughs> well, be your guess? This is uh, getting more Duke. difficult. Okay. Who would be your guess, Brennan? Houston. Houston's an excellent guess. What two players would you guess? Well, Hakeem, right? Okay, Hakeem the Dream, right? Yep. Okay. Who would be the other one? Hakeem, of course, playing in the dominant player in 82, 83, and 84. Yep. But who would have been like an 85? If he won it in 84, let's say, who would have won it in 85 from Houston? You going with one of the other I, guys? I don't or want are it. you going with Clyde Drexler one year and then Elijah Wan the next? Akeem the Dream the next? I think you're trying to bait me into that. They were teammates. Drexler came I, out a year before Sounds Elijah like you're trying Wan. to bait me into that, Eddie. <laughs> right? Of course, like, you, ha- you also have to throw in mind that they were playing in the same era as other great players like I understand. Michael Jordan, like Patrick Ewing, like Chris Mullen. This is like Regis on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Is that your final answer? I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I am such a nice guy then I'm going to allow you to phone a friend. I will allow you to phone a friend by going with perhaps the most authoritative voice when it comes to college basketball in knowing not only the current state of it, but the history of the game as well. He might even be able to mix in a little bit of Pittsburgh Steelers talk since they have a new offensive coordinator. Would that friend be you? No. Mike DeCourcy. Mike DeCourcy. Okay. Who is well, you to- grew up a Steelers fan. I did, but Mike DeCourcy is still a Steelers fan. Okay. And Mike DeCourcy, also a fan of Broadway plays because I've sat near him during those at Clues Hall, and he joins us next. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Nice to be hot blooded right now. I guess we are all hot blooded, are we not? Aren't we warm blooded? Isn't that right? That's what I learned in seventh grade. Yeah, if we were cold blooded, this wouldn't bother us outside, right? The fact we're hot blooded is what makes it cold outside, right? Isn't that right? Yeah. You got an update on the stairs, by the way? Uh, Let's see here. Hang on. Looking outside at the Monument Circle where you're 48 hours from the Circle of Lights. Hang on. Um, Yeah, complete foobar. I see like the crane said, still. Yep, that only, can't be good. The only two people right now preparing for the circle of lights based on the condition of the steps outside are Stanley Kahn and Ken Nunn. <laughs> uh, joining us now in the program, and I'm sure thrilled to be doing so with that intro, uh, he is the dean of college basketball writing, of course, Mike DeCourcy, joining us on the show. Mike, I had given the guys here a, a college basketball trivia question and uh, with the fabulous 
yet-to-be-named prize on the line, and I told him they could uh-huh. phone a friend and that you could be that friend. Are you up for the challenge here? Uh, I'll give it my best. But, uh, you know, they, my, every week uh, my uh, staff, our staff, uh, our college staff at the Sporting News picks three upset games. We have to pick three teams that are underdogs to win. And whoever wins, whoever gets one right, gets as many points as their underdogs by. So if you pick a two-touchdown underdog, you win the 14 points. I like that. And, and every week I'm like, dang, I missed that one by a field goal or my team just missed an extra point. And my wife says, what do you get if you win this again? And she's right. I don't, I don't get anything. So he's <laughs> on the line here. By the way, that staff, of course, for Mike DeCourcy could be at sportingnews.com or also his work with the Big Ten Network. So a number of places where you can see his expertise. Okay, here's the question, Mike. Since the Wooden Award began in 1977, Ralph Sampson is the only player to win in back-to-back years, okay? But there are two universities who have had back-to-back years where they presented the winner with two different players from each school, respectively. So, in other words, there are two schools that can say, in back-to-back years, we had a Wooden Award winner. It just happened to be a different player in each of the two years. Two schools can make that claim. What two schools are they? All right, I'm going to go with UCLA, okay. uh, Sidney Wicks, uh, and Bill Walton. Keep in mind, it began in 77, the Wooden oh, Award. See, oh, okay. I was thinking of a real Player of the Year trophy uh, and not the, not the Wooden Award, which is the least of all of them, by the way. Uh, I, we can get into that later as to why. But, uh, okay, so if that's not the case, if we're going later than that, um, wow. That is hard. Uh, I'm going to punt. I got I okay. got nothing. Eddie, you were correct with Duke University. And Duke University's two players were Shane Battier and Jason Williams. See, Jay I would Williams. have thought it would have been Redick and then ah, somebody else. Okay. The other, and it includes a guy that was a fabulous college basketball player that I think kind of gets lost in the shuffle in terms of people remembering because there were so many great players of the era. Chris Mullen won it in 85, and then a year later, the truth, Walter Berry was the mm, winner for St. John's. And a lot of people forget, I think, about Walter Berry. St. John's. Um, I said Houston, Mike. I thought that was a pretty good guess. Yeah, Drexler and Elijah yeah. would have been very suitable guesses, yeah. right? Yeah, so Patrick Ewing was playing then, and so it was hard. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't think Walter Berry should have gotten an 86. Uh, I, that was a, that was an odd choice for me. He was a terrific player, but that was an odd choice. I would have thought Johnny Dawkins or Manning, even though, even though Danny Manning was only a sophomore at the time, Manning would have been a suitable answer. Purvis Ellison would have been a good one, even though he was a young player in 86. So there were a lot of great players then. Great era, for sure, right? Um, Mike, first off, before we get to college basketball, your thoughts on your Pittsburgh Steelers changing offensive coordinators? Yeah, it, you know, what I, what I, my first thought was that they chose continuity over confidence and they paid the price. Uh, Kenny Pickett coming off his rookie year, uh, they had some progress as a team late in the year, uh, but it was pretty obvious. Look, Matt Canada never was qualified to be an NFL offensive coordinator. He was, in, in a dozen years, as a college offensive coordinator, there's 130 Division I teams. His average scoring offense out of 130-some so, teams, 57th. How does that get you an NFL coordinator job? How? Like, how? How does that even happen? And so, it's like saying, hey, Mike, 
We're going to put you on the NBC Nightly News. Lester Holt's gone. It's all you. Like, I'm not qualified. You probably are, right? Don't you think you'd do it? No. You'd, you'd be okay. I'm a professional communicator. I can, I, 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 but I'm not, I am not a news anchor. And, and he, is a, he, is a, uh, he is a professional football coach. He is a football coach, but he is not one of the 32 most qualified people on the planet to do that job. And they hired him anyway. And so this is the result you get. And when you double down by allowing him to do it for two consecutive years without producing a single game. This is true. A single game of 400 yards or more, not one. And then he added another, what, 10 now, uh, six and four. Yeah, so he's gone something like 44 games as an NFL coordinator without ever producing a 400-yard game. Every single team in the league, every other one, 31 teams, have done that at least three times in the period he's been an offensive coordinator. But do you have opinion about – no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mike DeCoursey's our guest, and I love the passion for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I grew up a huge Steelers fan, by the way. Mike, speaking of continuity, kind of segues nicely to my question here, which would be this. In college basketball today, where obviously you have a lot of turnover in terms of transfers and rosters, which team so far this year is the one that is – rolling along because they have the most continuity of roster from a year ago. Well, I think that Purdue has the most continuity of roster uh, and that, and that I think that started to pay off in the second half last night. I, I will tell you guys that I went to the Xavier game and it felt to me like a team that kept looking at the calendar and saying, if we can win this game, and we'll probably win it anyway. We could play brilliantly tonight, but what's it going to matter? It's all going to come down to what we do in March. That's what I felt uh, being there. And I'm not saying they don't care or anything or didn't care, but I just felt like that they were looking at the calendar while they were playing. And that's not that, they can't do that. Now, this Maui Invitational is perfect antidote for that because if they do that, I mean, whether they, whether they, however, whatever the approach is, they're getting hit in the head with a sledgehammer three times in three days because there's no, there's no escape from the opposition. Because they beat Gonzaga, uh, they've got Tennessee today. Regardless of what they do today, they'll have either Kansas or Marquette. So this is perfect. They can't think about that now. They have to, in order to perform and not. Be uh, not not come home from Hawaii for Thanksgiving uh, with a couple of big giant L's around their uh, necks. They'll they they have to perform, and they and and even if they lose, they can win because they can get better out there. And so I think that that's I think that's been perfect for them to have to play in this tournament in this field, the strongest deepest field relative to the season uh, that we've ever seen in a multi-team tournament. It's, it's it's an outstanding field, and this this is this is a great experience for them. I think Matt's doing an amazing job of of mixing Colvin into the lineup, into the rotation, putting him into key minutes late in the game against Gonzaga, late in the game against Xavier, uh, putting him under pressure so that he can grow from it. Because I think eventually his development will be the key to this team being able to do more in March than it has in the past. Mike, just talking in general of Feast Week and these Thanksgiving Week tournaments, or even this time of year, how much do you take away from a team's performance, whether that's good or bad, considering how much things can change come March? 
Well, I think what you do is you want to see teams continue to evolve and develop. And you can, like I said, you can play in a game and, and lose it and grow if you, if you learn from that, from that game and you grow from it. Or you, you can take a loss and, and perform badly and lose confidence and lose uh, connection among the team. And that's the key to this time of year is, okay, we weren't good enough tonight. Uh, win or lose, like Kentucky last night having to go into overtime, that, that's not good enough. But uh, it, it, you have to look at that and say, okay, how do we get better? And so these games matter because when you come down to the selections, and I do the brackets for Fox uh, starting in late December, right before Christmas, uh, we'll, we'll put some brackets up. And you, those, those games all matter uh, to, to whether or not you get in or whether or not you get a high seed. Uh, those games really matter, but they don't define your season. What defines your season is do you win your league, do you finish high, do you advance in the tournament? Mike, when you look at, at Purdue, and we'll get to Indiana here in a second, Mike DeCourcy is our guest from Sporting News and, of course, Big Ten Network. Uh, look, Zach Eady is a wonderful player. I, I, I mean, there's you have a huge advantage when you take to the floor with Zach Eady. Um and we were talking about this with Alan Carpick. I want your your thought on it. I'm not going to say is Purdue too reliant on Zach Eady, but has Matt Painter done a nice job of kind of working a roster around Eady that would be sufficient in the event that Eady would be unavailable late in a game? Do they have the proper chain of command on the floor of knowing where then the ball goes and who becomes ball dominant if Eady is not able to be on the floor? Yeah, I think the problem, honestly, Jake, is when Zach's not out there, I think it's more on the defensive end. I think they have answers offensively of, of what they can do if, if, Zach, if Zach's not there. It changes them, certainly. Uh, but you can post up Trey Kaufman-Wren, and there were, there were periods last night. I was really encouraged by Trey's performance last night, uh, really encouraged. Uh, because I, when I saw him against uh, Xavier, I mean, it just, there was nothing happening. And I was worried that he would not be a factor at all. And he was really energetic and really dynamic against Gonzaga and really involved and a huge difference in the second half. So you can do that now. You know you can throw the ball inside to him and you can play off of him. It's not the same as Zach, but he can handle it and he can make things happen with his ability to bounce the ball in the post. So I think you have lots of different answers on offense. The problem is on defense. You don't have anybody else that's going to uh, discourage opposing shooters from attacking the rim. It's not there. Uh, Trey's not that tall. Uh, Caleb's first is not that tall. So it changes you significantly. You need Zach in the game late uh, in order to be able to assure that opposing teams can't hit you off the bounce and, and really hurt your defense that way. In terms of Indiana, moving to the other Big Ten team in the state here, obviously, Mike, Mike DeCourcy, our guest, um, you know that when you have new familiar faces or uh, new unfamiliar faces like Indiana does, that there is going to be some time to find cohesiveness. At what point in the season, if Indiana is still kind of feeling out what they have roster-wise, would you begin to panic over it? In other words, when does that excuse of, hey, they've got some new faces they're getting familiar with, that starts to go away when? Well, see, I'm not sure that I would look at it as a panic situation. I think you have to look at it now and think, well, there's some stuff missing here, and can we can we find a way to get around it? What do you think's missing for them? That shooters. 
Um, they don't have anybody who's making shots except Xavier Johnson, their point guard. Uh, Khalil Ware is excuse me, Khalil Ware is, is doing a pretty good job for a seven foot center making jump shots, but you don't want to, you, you don't want that to be what your first option is for a three point shot. You want, you want Khalil Ware to be able to throw it out to somebody and that because he's getting triple teamed and that player be open and make a three, but right now no one's doing that. And that's a problem in, in modern basketball. It's hard to win against Big Ten-level competition. And that, when I say Big Ten-level, I mean like the high majors you're playing, whether it's uh, Louisville-UConn or some of the other teams on the schedule or the league itself. That level of competition, it, it's going to help you to make some threes, and right now no one's doing that. Uh, and Mackenzie Mbako is one of 13 from three-point range. Trey Galloway is three of 14 at this point. I, I think they need to get Trey more stationary shots, uh, a lot of his shots are off the bounce. I think they need to get him more stationary to see if, if he is, can he drop those shots. Uh, he, he's not getting enough easy opportunities from three. A lot of it's on the move. And, look, Steph Curry can shoot it anyway. Uh, on the move, standing on his head, whatever. But if you've got an offense that, and, and, and a squad that's struggling to make deep shots, you want to take the guys who maybe have a chance to make those shots and, and get them the easiest three-point shots possible. I don't think we've seen that so far from from Indiana. Mike, I was going to ask you about IU's three-point shooting, but just to the level of what you have coming up, you know, Maryland and Michigan for your first couple Big Ten games, but then you get Auburn and Kansas back-to-back. So how concerning is the three-point shooting when you add on the upcoming schedule because you're not really going to get a so- – quote-unquote break until you see Moorhead, North Alabama, and Kennesaw State at the end of December. Right, yeah, I think they have a game against Harvard this weekend, too. Right. Uh, that Actually, it'll be a challenge. I mean, they'll have to play well in it, as, as was the case, say, against Wright State. Harvard's probably even a little better than Wright State, so they're going to have to play well in that game. But it's, it's, gonna, it's going to be hard to win against that. It's going to be hard to win against Kansas, and the number one team in the country. Uh, so it, it, and you're you're getting Maryland at home. Maryland's really struggling to score right now, uh, and you want to make sure if you're Indiana that you continue that struggle. Michigan's played pretty well right now. They've got some tough games coming up, starting with Memphis in uh, the Bahamas in the battle for Atlantis. We'll see what kind of condition they're in when they get back from from uh, Nassau. But I, I think it's a challenge without a doubt, and and it's really hard to win. Like I said, at that level, against that level of opposition, if you're not making three-point shots, that's why the Louisville game was as difficult as it was. Uh, they, 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 they struggled for a period of time to stop Louisville in, with their ability to hit the, the, uh, hit the lane off the bounce a little bit. Uh, uh, the young man Clark had a really nice second half and helped bring excuse me, Louisville back into the game. But in the end, the real problem was that you're not, you're not dropping enough shots to stretch it out. You're one of 11 from three-point range. Uh, even at five of 19, Louisville outscores you by almost 10 points from, from deep. Mike, just out of curiosity, Mike DeCourcy, our guest, SportingNews.com, Big Ten Network, amongst other places. Um, when I began talking about the Wooden Award and, and you were saying – it's the secondary. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you by any stretch. Your sentiments on why the Wooden Award would be like a secondary award is what? 
They have what they have this academic thing where if you don't have a 2.0 grade average, they won't give you the trophy. So I don't know if you take organic chemistry that semester and look at like so many other pre-med students do. I'm using the most extreme example. No, I get it. Uh, you might not have the 2.0 and they won't give you the trophy and, and they'll publicly embarrass you by not having you by making it clear that you're not eligible. It's garbage. If you can play and you're the best player, you should get the award. And it's only come up about three or four times in the last 20 years, but it's it's embarrassed the people that it happened to. It's totally unnecessary. Uh, And so as a result, I don't even consider it a major award. I I never mention it in print. To me, the major awards, the Naismith is a great one. Uh, The AP award is a great award. It has a big voting body, but not too big, 65, 66 people, something like that. Uh, obviously I can, I, I put a lot of stock in the sporting news one, but, uh, you know, those are, those are all trophies, uh, that I consider more important because of that. I, I don't appreciate the, the embarrassment that has been, uh, that has been put upon young people who are just trying to do what they do. They're trying to play ball and, you know, maybe they, maybe they, uh, let their, took their eye off of the academic deal for a little bit, but like, like you're not flunking out of school cause you got less than a C average. Uh, they're le- you're, you're, you're probably still getting a chance to go back the next term. Mike, you began covering college basketball in what year? Uh, 1987-88. Okay. In that time frame to now, and I automatically have one in mind here, in that time period, the single most dominant college basketball season that you have seen was turned in by what player? Uh, the most dominant college basketball season since 1987-88. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say probably Leitner in '92. It's pretty uh, good. That that you know they 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 were dominant. They were tremendous, absolutely. But there are some really good ones as well. Uh, Jameer Nelson's 2004 season was amazing. Uh, it was for a smaller player to do what he did that year. Uh, Jalen Brunson's 2018 season, one of the better seasons I've seen from a guard. Uh, so th- th- there have been some phenomenal seasons. Who's your guy? Honestly, I, well, there are a couple. To be honest with you, from a statistical standpoint and carrying game standpoint, Adam Morrison had a great year. Um, but the guy that I thought had the most dominant season that I've seen, and I don't pretend to have seen it as intimately as you, but Glenn Robinson's 1994 year to me was un- unbelievable. Yeah, the the only problem was that he didn't get to the promised land. No, I get it, and, and I remember this. We we we. I was in Knoxville, uh, and after what he did to Kansas, and we were standing there. I think Pat Forty was there, and and we were just having a conversation in the press room, thinking like, who can stop this guy? I know, I mean, like no one. Uh, his back. And, that was the only thing that could stop him was his back injury. Well, and that that certainly had a big part in it, and I think also uh, Grant Hill. Uh, Coach K, at halftime of their game against Marquette, Coach K got after Grant Hill because they were getting they were getting beaten by Marquette in the Sweet 16, which was a very good uh, – I think they were in – at that point, I think that was the Great Midwest. And they were a very good Great Midwest team, but they, they, didn't, have, uh, they didn't have Grant Hill on their team. Uh, Coach K got into Grant, you know, uh, and Grant woke up and dominated the second half and then did a really nice job against – uh, an impaired Glenn in that uh, in that regional Mike, final. But I'll uh, tell you another guy, and it wasn't for a whole season, but in that time period you're talking, in terms of a guy just basically catching fire and putting a team on his back, 
Glenn Rice in 89 at the second in the last third of the season comes to mind as well. Yeah, and, and, and I was there in Lexington when they came in to play Carolina, and it wasn't expected for them to advance beyond that game. And Glenn just said, oh, yeah, watch me. I'm, I'm doing it myself. Uh, and he had very, very good teammates, but it was it, it, they were all riding him at that point in the season. He was just phenomenal in that game and then, uh, and then carrying him into the Final Four with an easy victory against Virginia and then the, the two great games uh, in uh, – in Seattle with uh, with uh, Illinois, my buddy Steve Bardo doesn't like to think about that game at all, uh, or the uh, or the game against Seton Hall and the phantom foul call uh, that put uh, Rumiel Robinson at the line. The phantom call. I think I was. I want to say the final of that game was eighty seventy eight, but that was in Seattle. The final four that year, right in eighty nine. It was nineteen eighty nine. It was the. It was the. Listen, it was the, the last Final Four game. The last Final Four I have not been at. It was the only one since uh, eighty six. That I, I, I didn't go in eighty six. I didn't get to go in eighty nine. It's the last one that, uh, that hopefully for a long time the, that I don't that I don't get to be at. Yeah, the Sean Higgins putback that put him up over Illinois into the finals, and then Seton Hall had beaten Duke, and I still was basically sitting around with a Seton Hall voodoo doll because Jay Edwards was my favorite player, and Andrew Gaze dropped like thirty five on Indiana in the regionals that year, and it, like two and a half weeks later, I got up off my parents' bedroom floor. It was just awful, <laughs> awful. <laughs> 50, so I, my, Mike, I know this will stun you. Sixteen year old. Jake Quarry did not handle losses well. <laughs> and I didn't even gamble for crying out loud. All right, Steelers Bengals, the 40-point explosion happens this weekend for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mike DeCourcy will be watching that and then of course covering college basketball where you can read him at Sporting News and watch him on Big Ten Network and hear him occasionally on this show where he raises the intellect standard to a whole new level. Mike, appreciate it as always. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Jake, and all my neighbors in Indianapolis. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Mike DeCourcy on the hotline. Good stuff. Man, that Andrew Gaze, man. I'll never forget that dude was a, a Kiwi that played for Seton Hall. They had John Morton. They had, I think Ramon Ramos might you have been on the team as well. just call him a Kiwi? Yeah. He's from New Zealand. Oh, okay. Yeah. Andrew Gaze was just lights out, man. <laughs> and that dude, I, he, I think he was, he might have been Australian. Maybe I think of Kirk Penny from Wisconsin, but I'm pretty sure Andrew Gaze was from New Zealand. And that dude hit like, it was ridiculous. I mean, Indiana had a great year in 89. They went to the tournament. They they rolled through the first two rounds, and they, they went out to Denver for the regionals. And Jay Edwards, rumor always has it. I don't even think it's rumor. Uh, Ed, Edwards was hungover and just did not play well. And Seton Hall just took him to the woodshed. And Seton Hall, that was, you know, P.J. Carlissimo just had kind of a Cinderella story team. And they went all the way to the finals. And lost to Michigan who Indiana had swept that year. Indiana won at Michigan when uh Lloyd Vaught missed a shot out of the corner and then Indiana won in Bloomington when Jay Edwards hit one of the great shots in the history of Assembly Hall. Absolutely f- fabulous memories. My dad that year by the way, Brennan, not that you care. Uh 71st in Benford, my dad at the Noble Romans Pizza dropped his business card in a goldfish bowl and they picked they plucked it out and he won season tickets. Really? My dad and I went to every game that year. That's a great wonderful, one. wonderful memories. Wonderful memories. There's, I'll tell you what. There's nothing like going to a sporting event with your dad. Oh, the best. Yeah. Is it the best? You've been to a sporting event with my dad. How did no. you know that? Well, I, I didn't have the honor. The Cubs hat and the baseball card. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Looking for cats walking yeah. around the neighborhood. Uh, when we come back, Jim Mercey spoke yesterday, and the people listened. You're going to hear about it tonight, but we're going to talk about it next. Brennan. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Just made a really good point about the Circle of Lights coming up on Friday. They're still doing it, right? Yeah. Oh, at least that's the plan. Congratulations! As one of the first 500 people at the Circle of Lights... Grab a hard hat. You're building some stairs. <laughs> I mean, seriously. like, So for those that are unfamiliar, on Monument Circle, and it's one of the great traditions in Indianapolis, the Circle of Lights, you know, the, the turning on the, the, the lights and turning it into the world's largest Christmas tree. I loved it. When I was a kid, it meant the world to me to watch, and I always dreamed of being the kid that got to, with Santa, you know, flip the switch. It's great. And you know, back when I was actually working at WIBC a million years ago, I talked on the air about how much I loved it and the UAW that, that goes out and streams up the lights and how much I appreciated that. And at that time, uh, Julia Watson, and I, I apologize that I forget her, her new married last name, but she was with Downtown Inc. And she gave me one of the original bulbs. Hmm from the original strands now obviously they're like you know led lights but one of the original blue bulbs i still have it to this day and it's actually kind of a, a, a cherished like possession of mine because of the nostalgia nature of it but the north side of monument circle right now they're obviously renovating monument circle and the north side steps leading up to the monument have been uh, removed <laughs> I don't know what they're doing with them. They've been gone since the summer. They've been gone since like April, (laughs) right? And they're just stacked up. I mean, literally, like you you come down here and it looks like Fred Flintstone's riding a brontosaurus (laughs) next to it. You know what I mean? It's unbelievable. And I'm like, wait a minute. They're expecting like 50,000 people to walk around the circle from a legality standpoint. I mean, somebody's going to roll an ankle for crying out loud. Mr. Slight's the boss downstairs. That's exactly right. I don't know what's going on. So tonight... On HBO Real Sports, Andrea Kramer sits down with Jim Irsay. This actually was done. Andrea Kramer apparently has been pursuing an interview with Jim Irsay for some, you know, a dozen years. And Irsay finally said, okay. And in his transparency, Jim Irsay allowed HBO to follow him for six days which included also a sit-down interview with Andrea Kramer. Now, we played this audio earlier, but Eddie, you let me know if we've if we've got it again. This is one of the excerpts that will air tonight. It will air on HBO and then also, of course, stream on HBO Max. This is Andrea Kramer with Colts owner Jim Irsay. How many times did you go into rehab? Oh, God, at least 15 times. Have you actually ever overdosed? Oh, yeah. One time I, I was trying to detox myself, um, and, I, and I mixed, uh, you know, multiple drugs that, that, that I didn't know anything about. And so all of a sudden I start slurring my words, and then um, cold blue, I stopped breathing. And they revived me, and the doctor goes, um, Jim... You're one lucky man because I had signed virtually the death certificate. So when that came out, and and HBO last night sent that preview out on social media, and that led to a number of people, Stephen Holder among them, to say, people that covered the Colts, to say, yeah, this, 
this verifies what we had heard forever, but were unable, but were never able to get confirmed. And people were like, "Oh, so you know what is this like? You know, sour grapes that you didn't get that interview, or you know, reverse scoreboard type thing." It's neither of those two things, and I'm simply offering this as explanation, not as justification, not as you know, just as explanation. And that is that with someone as polarizing as Jim Irsay, polarizing is maybe the wrong word, but with a lifestyle that is as polarizing as Jim Irsay's has been, we that cover the team and probably just throughout the city in general, you know, you hear different things, right? And a lot of times things that we hear are dismissed as, well, that's just hearsay rumor. That's the old phone drill, you know, my best friend's neighbor's next door, you know, neighbor's postal worker was at 33 flavors, that kind of thing. And I think there is some merit to addressing or illuminating the fact that this was something that many of us had heard because I had heard and I'm trying to, I remember exactly where I was when I was told this. I believe it was the year that that the Colts were in the playoffs and Andrew Luck was they were playing in it wasn't the deflate it might have been even the deflate gate game. But somewhere around that time period I remember someone who knows Ursay and is close to him telling me that basically exactly what he just said. And that's neither here nor there and it's not a matter of like well I knew that so I it's the fact that Oftentimes, we in the media, and and not in the media, just people, fans of a team, residents of a city, whatever it might be, but you hear different things, some of which are complete malarkey and some of which turn out to be verifiably true. The Andrew Luck shoulder and the snowboard incident comes to mind, where that's dismissed as ridiculous hearsay, rumor, gossip mill BS for like three years. And then finally, Andrew Luck goes, actually, that was true. And in this case, the same thing. It wasn't that it was ever dismissed when when those of us who had heard about Ursay coding and going, and I mean, I, to the point where I was even told what hospital he, he he's talking about. It wasn't, it's not the point of like, see, we were right after all. It's just the fact that then when there are other things that are persistent and ubiquitous in hearing and analyzing the way things are operating that are denied, you now wonder, okay, I know it's denied, but does that mean in three years it's gonna, we're going to hear, well, yes, in fact, that actually was true. Now, the important thing is that Jim Ursay is with us and is seemingly healthy and that he is using his experience to be transparent about what it was that he went through and to hopefully benefit other people. Now, two things that come out in this interview. One is, and I mentioned this earlier, but I don't know that a lot of people realize the history of it. When Robert Ursay decided to get into the arena of buying an NFL team, his original motivation was he was going to buy a team and essentially hand it to not hand it to is the wrong word but he was going to buy a team for the interest of his daughter with the vision that his daughter would become the first majority owner as a minority as a female in the National Football League pass it down was that the word you were looking for 
What's that? Pass it down, like pass the ownership down. Yeah, like I don't think he was he was looking to immediately buy it and just give it to her. But I think that that was correct to eventually not even pass it down because I think while he was living, he had this in mind that he would that he would facilitate for her to become the majority owner and operating officer of the franchise. But between the time when he had this vision and when he actually finalized a sale from Carol Rosenblum of the Los Angeles Rams, his daughter was fatally injured in a car accident, Jim Irsay's sister. And it comes out in the interview, as I understand it, that when Ursay's talking about some of the challenges he had as a young person that might have led to not only the hereditary nature of addiction because his father was an addict, but his mother at the time of his daughter or as his sister's passing, his mother made a comment to him, that should have been you. Mm. And that's a pretty harsh thing for any person to hurt here, but let alone from your mother, right? That's horrible. So that's one of the things that he he mentions and discusses in the interview. And that does shed some light on the difficulties that he had growing up. And then in addition to that, as he has mentioned before, I think Robert Ursay was, I, I don't know, I wasn't around, I have to go on Jim Ursay's word, but according to Jim Ursay, Robert Ursay was a really good person who, once his daughter was fatally injured, found refuge in alcohol and never came back from it. And it got worse and worse and worse. And so those are things that were circling around Jim Ursay in his very impressionable years. And so you understand the foundation then of the challenges that he has had. But obviously Robert Ursay bought the Rams and then traded the Rams in with made the trade and became the owner of the Baltimore Colts. He bought the Rams actually and traded with Rosenblum anyway, and so Rosenblum got the Rams. That's what it was, and he became the owner of the Baltimore Colts, which of course became the Indianapolis Colts. But the point being that I think Ursay finally pulls back the curtain on the vulnerabilities about himself and the origin of them, and I commend him and applaud him for his transparency in that regard because theoretically it is rooted in his desire to be able to help other people and to show that no matter how much money you have, how much power you have, how much whatever you have, a lot of things that are rooted in your familial structure or your childhood are difficult to overcome. And he is to be commended for his probably ongoing battle in overcoming that. And I think that's a battle that will probably exist for the totality of his life. But the one area that becomes a gray area and a slippery one that I think is uncomfortable for many people to hear or consume or ingest, because it probably sounds like you're nitpicking, but is the reality that while I understand that for the vast majority of all of us, Things like that are private issues. I go back to Ted Lasso, which, you know, in Ted Lasso, when there's the one game where Roy Kent goes out in the press conference and one of the players had gone up in the stands and he's asked, why did the guy do it? And Ted La- and Roy Kent's like, I have no idea. Because just because he's a footballer 
people think they have the right to criticize him. But what we don't know is what's really going on behind closed doors. And that's none of our business. But w- but so I don't know what motivates somebody because I don't know the inner workings of their structure. And in Ursay's case, for the first time, he's showing us the inner workings of his structure. But at the same time, he is somebody whose wealth has exponentially grown in the last 20 years, largely due to two things, the success of his football franchise and the building in which they play, which is largely publicly subsidized, including payments that go from the city directly to the Indianapolis Colts as part of the kudos to Jim Mercer for negotiating it, but part of the negotiation and agreement that this city has with the Indianapolis Colts, yes, he is the sole owner and chief executive officer, if you will, of the Indianapolis Colts, but they still do, as a franchise, take a, by normal standards, significant number of publicly subsidized tax dollars that go toward the franchise. And for that reason, while I don't damn him for that, for that reason, I do think that that then gives people a an invested interest in knowing the the inner workings of the franchise and and being and entrusting that the franchise is being operated under the utmost direction of clarity and that the person who is making those decisions is not doing so in a compromised fashion. So as a result of that, I do think that his personal struggles are of public interest i'm with you and let me tell you this jake so everybody knows i think by now i'm not from here uh my home is the state of illinois my original home when i got here that was 10 years ago this semester that was my first semester of butler fall 2013 and that would have been just about a year into andrew luck's tenure with the indianapolis colts now Growing up in Illinois, even across the border, I think a lot of people from all different kinds of walks of life are going to watch this tonight and go into it with different angles of their thoughts of Jim Irsay. They're going to have this preconceived notion of who they believe Jim Irsay is. A lot of people around here know the charity work and the philanthropy central Jim Irsay and what he does and you know handing out hundred bills or whatever it. Trinicat. A lot of people that are from around the country probably associate Jim Irsay with what you just got done saying, Jake, including probably the state of Illinois. And I'll give you this example. I was at home working in Wrigleyville this summer, and I turned on Chicago Sports Radio. That was the period of time where they were still discussing if you know the Colts were going to make moves, if they were going to trade up for Bryce Young, what they were going to do at quarterback. And the guy on... Chicago Sports Radio. Didn't know who he was. He was filling in. He used the term, and this is his term, he used the term crazy associating with Jim Irsay. And there are going to be people tuning in tonight, probably with that preconceived notion of what Jim Irsay is. And I'm just interested with how people are going to view this and how this comes out. Uh, we've got a very interesting tweet here from Shaq Leonard. Jake, I just sent you the graphic to this, so I'm going to hit the breaking news sounder for it. 
All right, so Shaq Leonard just tweeted this out four minutes ago. It's a picture of him, and it's got like a what seems to be like a retirement or a goodbye message. It says, Indy, I want to thank you for accepting me and my family with open arms. These past six years have been nothing but incredible. Through the good times and bad times, y'all stood by my side. I apologize for not bringing that trophy back to the 317. The energy in Lucas Oil has been nothing but amazing, and I thank you for every memory. I'm thankful to play for such an amazing fan base. I love you guys and wish the Colts nothing but the best. Maniac out. So two ways to read that. I mean, it certainly sounds like a guy that has accepted that he's, you know, he, he's not been happy in his in his role, right? I, I think there's no secret about that, that he's not been happy in the role that he he has had, but he also, you know, was that, is that a guy walking away or is that a guy just apologizing for the fact that he's not playing well? It sounds to me like the know. first, right? Yeah. Well, the last two words signify that, right? Well, I mean, unless he's just saying out like, hey, I'm out with what I'm saying. Yes, it, but although it does say, I'm thankful to play, not I'm thankful to have played, I for, you know, Stephen Holder is going to join us timely to do so in 16 minutes, and we'll get perhaps more perspective on what this means. Um, but a lot of people are like, hey, I'm praying for you mentally and and physically. I think Shaq Leonard is in a very frustrating place where his body has started to deny him what so naturally came to him for so long. And that's a challenge, right, in the fact that is he resigned to the fact now that he knows that his body is that he's unable to do what Holy he wants crap. to do? Uh, Shaq Leonard has been released per Ian Rappaport of the NFL yeah, Network. See, I would imagine from a salary cap standpoint that that would make sense because what I was just going to say is if his body is denying him to do what he wants to do, we knew that this coming off season was going to be significant for him because of the money that is tied into Shaquille Leonard, then you knew that that he the time was running out for him to be able to show that he could contribute to the level that he was accustomed to contributing. And with the money that was tied in and the cap space with it, then whether or not they sat down and had a discussion because he has been very vociferous in his lack of content with the way things have gone, maybe they decided now was the time. But we'll continue discussing exactly that and see if Stephen Holder is going to join us at 2. I do. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Trying to get a kick out of um, a couple of the national reporters that took the tweet from Shaq Leonard and said, Shaq Leonard has announced he's been waived. He doesn't say the words, I've been waived. I mean, I think they know that he has been, but his tweet does not say that. It's reactionary, certainly. But if you're just joining us here on a Tuesday, uh, various reports now. Shaquille Leonard, the linebacker for the Colts, has been waived by the team. 
Jim Irsay just sent out a statement saying that Colts Nation will always remember the Maniac's palpable energy on the field with each tackle, interception, punch-out, and fumble recovery. Off the field, he's a servant leader and assisted numerous families in both his hometown and the Indianapolis community. We're thankful for Shaq and the contributions he made to our organization. We wish him and his beautiful family the best moving forward. Now, the... Here is the unfortunate reality in the business of football. Shaquille Leonard, from the time that he was drafted, has been a great player for the Colts, undoubtedly. But Shaquille Leonard was a player whose greatness was defined by his unique ability, as worded there from Jim Irsay, to create turnovers and wreak havoc with his instinctive nature to either be it interceptions or cause fumbles, his his creation of takeaways was what made him special. It wasn't necessarily a dynamic range of motion or other such things like that. It was that ability. And oftentimes, those takeaways were facilitated by his knack to know where the ball was going to be and to get there at the right time and at the right moment. And when his body started to break down and prohibited him from doing that, Quite frankly, as much as I hate to say it, he became a secondary linebacker to other guys on the roster. And while that is fine, the money says that's not. And then in addition to that, his outspokenness about it might get and the other thing is this. It it is possible that at his tenure that he that when the Colts said, like, hey, you know what, what this is We'd rather you not be this outspoken about your lack of production, your lack of playing time, your, you know, he was saying that he needed more reps. Chris Ballard may well have said to him, look, we've got to see more. And Leonard may have said, you know what, as opposed to waiving me in the offseason, I just, can you go ahead and, and wave me now so that I can go somewhere else and see what I can do with a fresh start to try to to hold on to that contract from another franchise. And they may have said, yeah, that's cool. We'll do it. I mean, at this point, the Colts, quite frankly, for this year, yeah, I know they've got wild card contention, but I don't know that at this point you can say what they've done this year has actually been not in spite of Shaq Leonard, but not necessarily because of the contribution of Shaq Leonard, right? Was that kind of shtick kind of getting old for you? You mean the shtick of... Chip on shoulder. A little bit. Same. Yeah, a little bit. I, I, think I think it was warranted, Jake, when he was an all-pro talent. But you know what's kind of hard to believe? Th- this all happened after, you know, kind of his sidekick, Bobby Okereke, walked. Right. I, I was kind of under the impression once Okereke walked, that would open up an avenue for Shaq Larry. Now, be it, you made the good point that this is partially injury-based. But I don't think Jake he did himself any favors towards the end there with what he said. No, I, I would agree with that. I'd agree with that. I look, um great player for sure. Been a great player, right? But he did what he needed to for a number of years there. But th- hey, listen, there's an end of the line for everybody. And it just so happened to be right now. Uh, Stephen Holder may be tabled here for a little bit, understandably so, because his world just got thrown into a tizzy as it did for all of us. But I'd like to know from you folks as well. 239-1070 is the telephone number. Your thoughts on it. Do you see this as the Colts waving the white flag on the year? Do you see it as the Colts saying, you know what, let's go ahead and get in front of it in terms of the cap? Or what would you say to Shaquille Leonard about 
the fact that he was maybe too vociferous about his frustrations. Your thoughts, Shaquille Leonard out in Indianapolis, 239-1070. It's Quarian Company on the fan. Well, I'll say that. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Yes. If we thought tomorrow the narrative and the conversation around the Colts was going to be people's reaction to Jim Irsay on HBO saying that he was there was a prejudice against him as a rich white billionaire when he got pulled over in Carmel a number of years ago, uh, that narrative probably just went out the window because one of the more popular players, one of the guys whose banner hangs outside Lucas Oil Stadium, and one of the certainly most productive players of the last few years in franchise history, Shaquille Leonard, has officially been waived by the Colts. That announcement now from the franchise and from Jim Mersey within the last 10 minutes. So Shaquille Leonard, who I think we knew wasn't going to be here next year because of the fact that the, the sands of the hourglass just simply were moving too quickly through. And again, if this was a guy that was on a rookie deal, you, you probably get more patient in terms of waiting for the body to recover and the production to show itself again. But when you consider the amount of money that he was owed next year and the dead cap space of releasing him, it became an almost certainty that we had run out of time of being able to determine whether or not he was going to be able to be a productive player. And, you know, the reality is, if you, and I remember saying, and, and I, I, I hate to do told you so, that's not the intention here. But but I remember thinking to myself, I should say, and I'm not, I don't know if I was right or not, but I remember saying, and I caught a ton of heat for it, that if you took the takeaways away from Shaq Leonard, that he was actually a fairly pedestrian linebacker. And and I know that that's crazy. That's like saying if you take the height away from Wilt Chamberlain, he's just another player. Well, I mean, but he has the height, right? And for Shaq Leonard, you know, he had the turnovers. But once he just couldn't get there with the, the same frequency, then things changed and the production changed, and so too did the reps. Jeremiah joins us on the show to talk about exactly this. Hi, Jeremiah. How are you? I'm doing well, Jake. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, we met over the summer and briefly discussed the importance of mental health and uh, advocacy for mental health in all facets. And uh, I appreciate the time that we had together at Back Nine. Um, that's one of the things I definitely applaud Mr. Ursay in being a strong advocate for mental health. Um, having to deal with his own demons and putting it out there on Front Street is above and beyond what most people would even think. Uh, someone of that stature would do and so when we watched this documentary tonight we have to kind of stop and think about he he struggled with a lot of things in his life as you mentioned earlier and to be able to bring that to light may end up saving someone's life in the long run and that's that's huge and i i think shaq leonard kind of emphasized that well with his own you know mental struggles and probably a little bit now so with this news and they both kind of said, you know, hey, if you need help, get out there and get the help. So despite what the the other issues that come along with both these individuals, you have to also stop and think, okay, we need to applaud them for what they can do above and beyond the game that they play or participate in or the team that they own. 
Well, I'd agree with that, Jeremiah. The, the, the side of it, on Shaquille Leonard's side standpoint, though, is when it comes down to it in terms of the – when it comes down to it in terms of being on the roster to getting a paycheck, though, then unfortunately, or for whichever way you want to look at it, I mean, the business nature of it says it does come down to what you do on the football field. You know what I mean? The, I, I applaud to your point what he, was, what he has done and theoretically will continue to do outside of football in terms of bringing awareness for what Shaquille Leonard has gone through a lot, you know, with depression and those kinds of things. Um, and, and who knows, Jeremiah, that might be – this is merely conjecture and maybe it's an unfair one, but based on the precedent, I, you know, maybe Shaquille Leonard just said, look, this has got me in a situation where the frustration, the uncertainty, the anxiety of it all – I'm better off. I need some time away. I, that's entirely possible. And the Colts may have said, "Well, we know that we're not bringing you back next year, so you know, get your mind right, get your body right, and and best of luck to you." I, it, it may be that simple. I think sometimes we automatically think that that like there was some huge napalm moment, and maybe there was, but it's also entirely possible that it is a completely amicable situation. Uh, let's go to Derek, who joins us. Hi, Derek. Hey, what's good up? Afternoon, Dick. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. Uh, well, first, I just want to preface this. I am a big fan of Shaq Leonard. Um, I was able to receive a signed football several years ago during COVID when, uh, for Veterans Day. Blue came to my house, gave me all kind of gifts, and assigned Darius Leonard football. was one of them. So I was an immediate fan of his, and I really, really, really hate to see him go. But I, I just want to see what you think about this. I think – some of it has to do with everything you were saying with, with him not being able to get the turnovers that he was getting. But I think some of it has to do with, with his agent. I think his agent got him out of there. It probably came to a flashpoint like, you know, Chris Ballard, let's agree to disagree. If you're going to release me, let me go now. Versus when Jonathan Taylor still has stuff left in the tank, it worked out on his behalf. And one more thing I want to say. I hope Michael Pittman Jr. does not sign with this same agent. What do you think? With the agent that Jonathan Taylor has, you mean? Well, Jonathan Taylor and Shaq. I think a lot of it has to do with his agent. Maybe 50% of it. I mean, that's possible. But if I'm Michael Pittman, I'm probably – I'm very interested in that agent because it got Jonathan Taylor what he wanted, right? I mean, the Colts tried to play a hardball with Jonathan Taylor, and guess what? In the end, Jonathan Taylor got exactly what he wanted. So, from an agent standpoint, that dude did his job, right? I mean, love him or hate him, he did exactly what Jonathan Taylor wanted him to do. And for that matter, he did exactly what Shaquille Leonard wanted him to do, which was get him – if you look at it, Shaq Leonard is owed to the Colts if he had played $62 million over the next three years. As it is now, he gets $8 million against the cap, dead cap space, $8 million. Michael Pittman Jr.'s agent is David Mulugeta of Athletes First – and on the Shaq part of this for this year, um, since he was waived, any team has the option to claim him. They will have to pay him $6.1 million for the rest of this season. Well, if you're another team, are you touching that? Uh, exactly. I I don't. Exactly. I'd wait until the offseason and find uh, out where he no. is, right? Uh, hell no. I The track record on and off the field this year. You want the, at, If you're a playoff chase, I understand that Shaq Leonard has been – a dynamite linebacker for years and years, but he hasn't been this year. And if you're in a playoff chase, you add that to your locker room and things don't gel, 
that's bad news bears jake Here, here's the better question somebody raises this point and it's a really good one now it's a matter of okay so what do you do with the money where how do you for the colts now sh- sh- oh. shaq leonard shaq leonard's gone right okay fine you turn the page fine but you've now freed up money. You got eight million in dead cap space, but you're saving yourself some money there. Fifty-five million over right. the next three years. So, so how do you use that? Does that go to Pittman now? Well, amongst others, I'm not saying yeah. entirely Pittman, but or you know, do you go out and get that? How they use that now is going to be critical. You have created now for yourself some flexibility, and they got a ton of cap space. Look, Chris Ballard loves cap space. Loves it. I've said all along, cap space to me. For like, you get we're we're coming into the season here where you get gift cards, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, here's a gift card. Merry Christmas. Here's a gift card. Now I've got uh, it, it, like I have so many gift cards because I'm paranoid to spend them. I'm like I love. Oh, having, I, I, I hate lo- spending gift cards. Right. I yeah. love having that security. Oh, I got a gift card. One of these days I'm going to run out of gas. I'm going to be stuck on the road, but I got a gift card and free <laughs> tank. Right. I, I, I'm. I literally. I, I've told people before. I have enough speedy reward points right now to buy Saudi Arabia. Literally. Yeah. Okay. We've done the calculation. Right. And, and and because I just refuse to spend it. Right. And so, so I understand <laughs> cap space. That's kind of how it works, right? Like you're, you're creating all this cap space because someday you're going to need it. Well, guess what? Like that someday is coming up fast. Jacob, what's up? Hey, what's going on, Jake? How you doing today? I'm all right. Hey, I wanted to say, man, congratulations on the show. Man, you're, you're killing it, man, and I appreciate what you do for us, man. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that, Jacob. You and my mom, that's two people that feel that way, so it's good. To, and, and you have to because <laughs> we have the same name to an extent, so. Right, right. Hey, I wanted to uh, I wanted to comment on uh, Shaquille Leonard. A hundred percent, it's a cap space thing. Uh, I mean, and even I, and I want to get your thoughts on this. When uh, you know there was there was talk that Shaquille had a different role in Gus Bradley's defense. Well, before that, what was his role? He played. He, he could do whatever he wanted to. He was a free Roman linebacker. You don't pay a guy hundred million dollars. He was doing something great, and then you pay him a hundred million dollars, and you you change his role. It's like having Nick Bosa go to be a run stopper, not a pass rusher anymore. So I think it's on. I think it's on both sides. I don't think it's on Shaquille. Of course, injuries has something to do with it. But uh, I mean, I hope him the best, man. He, he was still my favorite Colt on the roster. I, I love him, man. But I hope wherever he goes, I hope he. I hope he has success. I would agree with all those points, Jacob, um, and not just because of the kind words in the beginning. I, but the the one that I most agree on is even with different role there just was no indication that it was going to get headed in the right direction. And that's at least, again, you had basically a ceiling, okay? Like, okay, I'm the king of bad analogies, I know, but I'm going to use one here, okay? When you're in traffic and you're sitting there and you're in one lane and it's it's kind of moving and then the other lane moves and the, and you're trying to make the decision as to whether to stay in your lane or, or not. and then you finally look ahead and you see that the reason traffic is slowed is because your lane is about to end so you know you've got a deadline on when you need to go ahead and commit to the new lane but you're like yeah but this lane's moving so i'm going to try to ride this bad boy as long as i can as long as i can as long as i can oh man now i've come to a stop and like i got it now i got to get over in the Colts case with Shaquille Leonard, the, the the end of lane was coming quickly because they knew they were waiting the whole time for that opening to happen with with the injuries 
to subside and for him to become the player that they that they knew he could be. And I think he knew that. I think he was frustrated. And quite frankly, I do think that a factor in why they did this now as opposed to waiting to the end of the year, I don't know this, but the one thing I do know is that he had become more vocal about not only his own frustration, but it's one thing for a guy to be frustrated. It's another thing for a guy to be frustrated and start vocalizing it and then like frustrations can become contagious. Yeah. And they may well have said, look, you're a great player and you've been a great guy and you changed tires for people on the side of the road and you did a lot in the community. And 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 people in Indianapolis, Brendan, this is what makes Indy different than a lot of places. Okay? Reggie Miller is the most popular pacer, arguably the most popular player in this city. I mean, Peyton Manning, obviously, right? But... But Reggie Miller was beloved here for this reason. First off, Reggie Miller's from Riverside. He's not from Los Angeles. He's from Riverside, which is like way suburban Los Angeles. But to those of us in Indiana, we just think he's from L.A. He went to UCLA. He's from Southern California. Reggie Miller comes to Indiana, and when he went up against the Knicks and he was talking about, this is for you, Indiana. We're coming home. Like Hicks versus Knicks. He totally bought into and fueled himself with the inferiority complex of being snubbed because he played for Indiana. And as a whole, we in Indianapolis, Indiana, India no place at one time, Naptown, we're pretty proud of ourselves here. We're proud of the fact that we utilize sports to grow as a city behind the National Sports Festival and the Pan American Games and the Indianapolis 500 to develop ourselves into the 11th largest city in the country and a top 20 market and a place that was the epicenter of a lot going on and hosting Super Bowls and different con- conventions and events. We're proud in Indianapolis, but we have an inferiority complex chip on our shoulder. We just do. So as a result of that, we in Indianapolis as sports fans gravitate towards Gary Brackett, undrafted free agent out of Rutgers, undersized but bulldog mentality. Jeff Foster, late round draft pick, not even drafted by the team, sits out for a year but gets in there, does all the dirty work and gets every loose ball. Antonio Davis spends two years overseas, comes back, develops into this wonderful player before our eyes. We love in Indianapolis players and storylines that are underdog our entire existence as a community is based upon a movie that is 35 years old that was 32 years old of a story when it came out because we love the underdog story and we define ourselves by underdog and that's what Shaquille Leonard is yeah he was a second round pick I think it was but at the time when it was a when he was picked every prognosticator on television was like this is a terrible pick This guy's at South Carolina State because Clemson didn't want him. And yet he was a maniac out there, and you you couldn't avoid him on tape. And so people loved that about him. They loved the storyline behind it, and that's why he connected with people, and that's why people wanted to see it work. And that reaching down, deep down inside of himself to overcome all of that, to be a productive player, is what that identifies Indianapolis. And that's what we loved about him. But... Unfortunately, as quickly as all of that like rise came and that identity came, then all of a sudden when the play became pretty average, and it's been pretty average, Brennan, and we know why. 
It's injury. We know why. We get it. It's not his fault. But then all of a sudden, his body got to the point where he he kind of was just another guy out there. And this year has not been about necessarily this year. It's been about putting things in place to be able to ultimately build a team in totality around Anthony Richardson. And if this allows them to open up the money to do so, then they're in pretty good shape. Right? Right. Well, you're realizing quickly, too, just how bad you probably need that money. Now, cap space has seemingly never been an issue, but if you're going to get the A.J. Brown type guy. If Michael Pittman's not a number one, you have to invest in that number one wide receiver Correct. talent for Anthony Richardson. Correct. And, I, and, and, and that's going to be big ticket, right? And where's that money come from, Jake? It comes from probably freeing up this $55 million. Now, that does lead me into a question, Jake, and you tell me if I'm being incorrect here. Does this Leonard downfall, knowing what you paid him, and the contract that you gave him, does that start to concern you to think two to three to four years from now about other big contracts in other positions that are not wide receiver? Does that concern you about what those futures could look like? No, not if. Actually, no, and I'll tell you why. Because they just showed that they have the 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 ability and the gumption to just say, to get out from underneath it. It, it all right. depends on how this, the contracts are set up, right? Sure, but you don't want to go through this type of stuff again. I mean, this is dragged on for a while. You're right. But 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 I don't think it would happen with the other guys. But injury drags on in players in general, right? It does. I mean, that's, it's a reality in the NFL. It does. But it does. I mean, it's crazy to think that $8 million against the cap, dead cap. So basically, for people that don't know, like, well, what does that mean, Jake? Eight million. What that means is when you have the salary cap, then each player's contract goes a certain amount against the salary cap. And in this case, the Colts are getting out from a lot of the guaranteed money that he or, or the, the salary he would get if he was on the roster, but they still are penalized the portion of $8 million against their salary cap moving forward. So they are going to have eight when, – when the Colts in 2023-24 are figuring out their salary cap issues – they are going to have $8 million going against the salary cap that is representative of a whole because that the, the player that it is going towards or crediting towards is not on the roster. Sean joins us. Sean, good Tuesday to you. How are you? Uh, I'm doing fine. <clears throat> uh, the word, Using dragged out is kind of a – I don't know that's a lame way of saying it. Shaq, Shaq was a superstar. He deserved some time to, come, to give him a chance to come back. Um, the last caller, you guys, you guys are kind of glassing over the fa- fact that Jack is playing a whole different pos- different position. I mean, the defense with under Eberfuss was he was uh, everything was funneled to him. Correct, and, and I, I would time, agree with that for sure. It's not that way now. Who knows if Shaq could be the the um, same player? To me, another team six million to another team—that's a joke. I mean, six million dollars. Those teams. Somebody, I think somebody ought to just run to Shaq because I think he's got plenty left in the tank. Yeah, this year he might not be totally there, but you guys act like uh, he's untouchable. If the Colts are upset that a player voices his opinion about his playing time, I mean, have we become that soft that we let stuff like that bother us? 
who said I mean, that that was definitively the reason? No, you guys are saying he's been vocal about some things. That's he a has, fact. That's a fact. So, so what? It, it is true that he has one. been vocal, correct? Yeah. So it's so is a uh, Pittman. Okay. So I, I'm not. I mean, to me, that's a player that wants to play. I don't know. We can't be cutting. What I'm saying is, we can't be cutting players just because they get vocal about playing. I, I don't think, Sean. I don't think anybody is saying that that was the entire reason that he was released. At this point, until we know factually, if you're if you're creating conjecture about or you know trying to trying to come up with the reason why he was released, could that have been a factor? In other words, what I'm getting at is, if he is willing to stand in a locker room and say that he is frustrated or unhappy with his role, then I would assume that that means he is vocalizing the same when in discussion with Chris Ballard, and that would seemingly perhaps lead to or open the door to a conversation as to one of the ways in which that could be resolved. I, I don't think it was a disciplinary move by any stretch. No. By any stretch. But it is and you make a very good point about the defense being facilitated towards him. No question. An excellent point by you. No no question, Sean. But at the same time, I don't think it has anything to do with like they're just soft and they got their feelings hurt. I don't. I don't think it's that at all. I know that's a that's a fun narrative, and it's a, it's that's actually probably the cheapest and easiest narrative of like oh they're just too soft. I don't think it's that at all. I think it comes down to probably an amicable divorce between two parties, one of which saw a deviation from the way in which he was used and was frustrated with it, and the other of which saw a deviation of production and was frustrated as well. And so they, out of respect to one another, decided to move in different directions. Uh, Barry joins us. Hi, Barry. What's up? What's going on, man? You're looking at it. Yeah, I just want to say with that uh, previous caller, he said Shaq was playing a completely new position. Um, he was playing the same position, just a different scheme. Um, and then secondly... You know, if you watch the tape, Shaq just – obviously he's coming back from injury, but he's not the same player. And when you're dealing with a nerve injury, I mean, there's a good chance that that agility, that quickness, that twitchiness is never going to come back. So, yeah, I really didn't get that. But, I mean, I completely understand it from both parties. I mean, he feels like, you know, he still has, you know, that all probability, and we just don't see it on the film anymore. I, that's the thing, Barry. I, when it comes down to it, to me it comes down to this. You know, regardless of how they came to the conclusion or or drew the conclusion, the reality is that Shaquille Leonard was an excellent player, and the reason he was an excellent player is because he had like this extra two percent burst that gave him this instinctive nature to create turnovers. That was what made him different than other linebackers. It wasn't his side to side range per se. It was the fact that he had an innate ability when when the chips were on the line to create turnovers. I mean, quite frankly, that is what that is what made him so unique. And the second that that two percent was taken away, he might have still been ninety eight percent the player. But it was that 2% that separated him from his peers. And then he becomes another linebacker, but one that's play, that is being paid like a guy that's playing with that extra 2%. And that becomes the challenge. Then it becomes down to a dollars and cents issue. And you throw in the fact, and I want to go back to what Sean said, because Sean, I understand and respect what you're saying. In terms of Shaq being vocal, I don't think the, the Colts brought him in and said, Look, we're tired of you barking in the locker room, so we're going to release you. But it is entirely possible 
that that facilitated a conversation of, look, we've seen what you've been saying publicly, so we want to sit down and discuss with you where things are. So you tell us your frustration. Well, I'm frustrated because coach didn't use me this way and I should be playing more snaps. And, you know, my body's just, it's been letting me down, but I'm, I'm not able to work through it in, in the way that I want to. And then the Colts say, well, we understand that. And then from our side, Shaq, the frustration would be, unfortunately, we got a lot of money wrapped into this, and at no fault of yours, we're running out of time on when we're on whether or not we can factor in if it works out for us. And so then the two of them sit there and they talk, and they go, you know what? And Shaq says, man, maybe somebody else will give me that $6 million for the rest of the year. And they said, that'd be wonderful. We, we would love that. And we are in a, we're in a position right now where we are as much building towards the future as we are building to right now. And so those two conversations came, and one was oil and one was water, and they mixed together, and they turned into a really nice dressing. I, I, I mean, that, that is entirely possible that that's what has taken place. But it's a huge topic of conversation, and we'll continue the conversation on the other side. Midway. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. To the 2 o'clock hour on a Colts News Busy Tuesday. Jake Query here along with Brendan King. Is that a game-worn jersey you've got on? It is not. It's a sweater, right? It's a sweater, yep. Yeah. Okay. And, and you've been a Panthers fan how long? My first, so my parents bought their place in Florida when I was nine, so 10-ish. So that's 18 years. And that's your favorite NHL team, right? Well, I, I split it up. So okay. my, before yeah. my, well, no, truthfully, before my uncle passed away, uh, he was a Blackhawks season ticket holder, so we watched three cups together. And then that was before, um, well, that was after I went to my first Panthers game. So I kind of split it up, so root for both. So what would you do if they were playing one another? Let me answer that question for you. Root for the winning team, of yeah. course. I went to a Blackhawks-Panthers game uh, two Sundays ago with my mom. I wore this sweater and I wore a Hawks hat. I was one of those. Okay, but Okay, but deep down... When you're watching the game, deep down, you kind of emotionally find yourself leaning which way? I hope both teams have fun. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know what? You got you to go to the uncle, right? You got to tip your cap to the I got to tip my cap to my uncle, yeah. Dan. But yeah, I mean, listen, the Hawks won three cups, loved it, and now, hey, it's the Panthers' time. I mean, went to the final last year, and I think they got a good shot this year. Okay. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. It's a, it's a nice down the middle sweater there. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, released by the Colts. Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille, 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 Shaquille Leonard. <laughs> Whoa. Well, I'm so, you know what's funny? Because it's somebody was just tweeting to me about Darius Leonard, and I'm like, no, it's Shaq. It's Shaquille. And so, like, in my mind, I'm like, Shaquille, like, like Shaquille O'Neal was what I was thinking in my mind. So Shaquille Leonard released uh, by the Colts today. Greg joins us on the program to talk about that and his reaction. Hi, Greg. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Uh, happy early Thanksgiving to all of you. Same happy you. Thanksgiving. Thank you. Um, I, listen, I, I think uh, – I don't understand the cap stuff and all that, but somebody's going to pick him up. I'm thinking Buffalo because uh, they need a linebacker with their injuries. I mean, he, he's still a steady linebacker. There's not a lot of people at a linebacker thing that, you know, leads the league and, like, takeaways and time. Zaire Franklin is doing great, but – Eventually, you need a, a functional linebacker, and I, I think he's good. I don't know. I don't know the timing of this. Maybe you, you all can explain this to me. It's like 
if we have them for the year, then we have them for the year. Why are we six million? We're not going to buy anybody six million. Is this for uh, you know Ursay to buy another guitar? I don't understand why we're doing this at this particular point in the season. Well, and again, Greg, I think the answer to and it's a great point. I think the answer to your latter question there comes down to this. And so to, to explain the cap thing first, okay? The contract for Shaquille Leonard is such that he is owed, like if he was to stay, let's say that he had never gotten hurt and he was still a productive player and whatever else. He's owed like, I think it's 62, roughly, over the next three years is what he would earn if he was still with the team. Or they can release him, as they have done, and at that point upon releasing him, $8 million. So in other words, you can't just say, you know what, we're releasing this guy, and so we're freeing up $63 million off of our salary cap. Okay? And the salary cap is such that it is an amount that you have to you cannot exceed a certain amount that, that fluctuates year to year on your roster in totality and what you're paying people. So to avoid teams just constantly releasing everybody, when you sign a contract, there is a what's called dead cap number, which is the amount of money that that you are still responsible for because you committed to paying somebody. So in Shaquille Leonard's case, even though he will not be a member of the Indianapolis Colts next year, the contract that he had signed will penalize, for lack of a better phrase, the Indianapolis Colts $8 million against their cap next year. So if the salary cap is, you know, I have no idea what the cap is going to be. Of course, that's assuming nobody claims him off waivers because whomever, if somebody were to claim him off waivers, they would have the entirety of his contract that comes with him. And, and, and And that's the thing, right, is then that becomes a whole different talk show of, but his dead cap hit is $8 million next year, okay? So that's number one. Uh, number two, look, he's been he's been a great player, but the reality is the combination of the injury with his production, with perhaps a new scheme, but a number of different factors, this year has always been about and continues to still be about building the roster around and facilitating for the growth of Anthony Richardson. When, when, Whenever you in the NFL, whenever you draft a franchise quarterback, then in doing that, you are completely wiping clean the Etch-A-Sketch on, your, on the, the trajectory of your team and starting over the design. And in doing that now, you are saying, okay, everything in this season, from our inventory, from our scheme, everything else is about making sure that we are able to grow the quarterback that we have drafted in Anthony Richardson. And that's in so therefore, when you are looking at, for example, whether or not you're going to bring Shaquille Litter back, then a lot of that goes into, okay, we have reached the point now where we know we're not going to bring him back next year. So, and he was released. He did not request, apparently, according to Mike Chet, he did not request to be to be released. He was simply released. Uh, Stephen Holder joins us now, who I'm sure is absolutely slammed. So he's got a couple of minutes. We appreciate it. Stephen, let's get right to this right away. And that is, from your understanding, what did go into uh, what seems to be, obviously, 
you know, was this a long growing process or was it one thing where they simply called him in, they sat down, they couldn't come to some sort of an agreement on where they were? What led to the release of Shaquille Leonard? So every indication I have is that this is just a pure football decision. And it has nothing, from what I'm told, nothing to do with his his outspokenness, you know, which, you know, we've talked a lot about in recent weeks. So we do have to at least wonder. Uh, so it's not about that. Uh, it wasn't about, um, I mean, it is about money to some extent, but, but that's really not the, the, the foremost issue here. Uh, this really, in the Colts' estimation, was about a guy who at this point cannot, um, he's just not, they, they have better options, to be completely honest. They have better options at that position right now. I'm still shocked that they did it now, and I, and I don't know that they had to do it now. But um, maybe I will say this. No one told me this, but I think if you look at Shaq's performance in that last game, uh, it was a setback for him, okay? I thought that was his worst game of the season. And, and on the heels of that, his playing time was not going to increase. If anything, it was going to decrease. So I do wonder if on the heels of that and knowing what that meant for his playing time moving forward, if this was something they, they felt they had to do, because it, it might have gotten thornier, you know, to, to have to reduce his playing time even further. And how would that exacerbate the situation? So those are sort of the, the details that I can't speak to because they're, they're sort of hypotheticals, but, but, but I have to imagine all of that was considered. Okay. Steven, in your opinion, the decline of Shaquille Leonard in the last year is most based upon a change of scheme, B lack of health or C suddenly he started to show himself as the more pedestrian linebacker that he really is, and he had a couple of years there when 100% healthy where he played even beyond himself, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely number two. It's, it's the health. I mean, th- there can be some role of those other things you mentioned. Um, I mean, like the scheme change, and I, I, I've talked about this recently. I, I think it hurt him. I do think the scheme change hurt him. However, there are moments when, when he's in the open field and there's a play to be made, that isn't about scheme. That's, that's where he's at his best, right? When he is unblocked in the open field, there's the ball, go get the ball. That is Shaquille Leonard. That is what he made all pro three times, first team all pro. He, he made it three times doing that. And, and he can't do it in the same fashion now. It, it brings me no joy to say that. Like, I felt really lucky to, to be able to see the, um, the emergence of Shaq Leonard. You know, I, I felt like I, I saw it his second game. Like, we can go back to that Washington game in, in 2018, I believe week two. And we saw, it. I think, 19 tackles that day. And you, you walked away saying to yourself, oh, my God, how did they find this guy? You know, but, but health is everything in the NFL. And add this to the long list and the long pile of players we've seen uh, thrown to the wayside, to be completely honest, you know, who were never the same after a particular injury. It's, it's tragic. It's sad. It's all of those things. But, but it's a really harsh reality of this game. Do you believe, Stephen Holder, that Shaquille Leonard will play another snap in the NFL this season? Hmm. Uh, I, I bet somebody gives him a shot. 
I, I think that he he will want to for sure. That is unquestionable in my opinion. Knowing him, I mean, he's not going to go home and put his feet up. Okay, that ain't that ain't him. Now, what that role will be, how much money they pay him, all of those things, I don't know. Now, I will say, there's not much, there's not a ton of money left on on the the cap for this year. I mean, I'd have to do the math, but the Colts have paid. Uh, more than half of the money he's owed this year. It's still a significant amount of money. I think we're talking maybe six, $6 million. $63.5 is what he would have been owed if he had stayed with them, right? Well, um, I mean just this year. Right, right. I'm talking about, yeah, in the next three years. Now, question yeah. becomes, Stephen, um, and then we'll let you go here, but if 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 Shaquille Leonard – so two, two scenarios here, okay? Yeah. Scenario one is – and we'll just throw a team out there uh, – the – Brandon, throw me a team off the top of your head. Chicago. Eagles. Chicago Eagles. Bears. Okay, the Eagles. Okay, so the Eagles sign him, okay? The Eagles yeah. pick him up off waivers. If that is the case, that means what for the Colts financially moving forward? And if no one signs him, it means what for the Colts moving forward financially? Okay, so if he if someone picks up the contract, so there's 24 hours, you got if you're cut today, generally depending on when the transaction happens, you got 24 hours to make a waiver claim. If you do that, you assume the remainder of that contract. Now, it won't be a, it won't be that bad for the for the team that is acquiring him because they didn't pay the signing bonus. The Colts are still required uh, to to absorb all of the ramifications of the signing bonus they paid him. So all of the money they've paid him already, there's going to be dead money accordingly and so forth. Uh, and the majority of that, I guess for the Colts, the ramification there would be uh, they would, they're going to save a significant amount of money next year either way. They're going to save $16 million at least. And I guess I'd have to figure out well, what it would mean for the, for the other team. But, but it would mean they would have to pay his base salaries, which are pretty high in the coming three years. And that's if, and one, that's if he signs point. or does not sign. That, that's if he no no that's if he is claimed off waivers. Now, if the contra if he's not claimed off waivers, then this contract goes bye bye, and we never talk about it again. It's over, and then all of the all of the uh, uh, amateurized I think that's how you pronounce that word <laughs> amateurized money the Colts have paid him the salary the salary excuse me the the signing bonus gets spread out over the life of the contract except now they're cutting him three years early. So all of that accelerates, and it hits your cap um, over the course of so, this year. So if you are the Colts bean counter, you are yeah. hoping that he does or does not get claimed? Um, if he gets claimed, it's probably, a, it's probably slightly helpful, but not as much as you'd think. Here's the thing, Stephen. We were going to talk all day tomorrow about some of the comments Jim Irsay said to HBO tonight, and that oh, just completely went out the window, right? No, this is crazy. It's brilliant, I, 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 isn't I it? I tell you, it, it's it's really shocking. I'm I'm really shocked. Um, look, it was bad, right? The situation wasn't great. I get it, and 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 I will tell you, I my antenna was up that that he was maybe going to get benched, and or at least his playing time would be reduced. Uh, I tweeted this already, but I'll just repeat it here. Um, I had a source tell me last week because I, I I realized you know this was a bad situation and I'm like okay th- this can't keep going like this like he's not playing well he's complaining like how are you guys going to handle this and I asked a source over there last week 
And the response was, among other things, I won't, I'll spare you the other stuff, but one part of this response got my attention. We will do what is best for the team at the end of the day. I thought that meant we would, like, sit him. I did not ever consider that meant we're going to cut him, like, next week. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm really shocked. Steven, I appreciate it. I know it's a busy day. I know you got a busy day in front of you as well. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well, all right? All right, same, guys. All right, Stephen Holder from ESPN.com. We'll come back, we'll put it all together, and we'll hand it off to John next. Okay, this from Destin Adams on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it now. The Colts will save a total of $55 million over the next three seasons by releasing Shaquille Leonard. The move leaves $12 million in dead cap on the team books over the next two years. $8 million next season, $4 million in 2025. So there you go. But the reality is, wonderful player, really fun personality, seemingly philanthropic guy on the side of Lucas Oil Stadium and production was no longer meriting the contract. I, I mean, I, it's a look, I know it's harsh. But it is a business. In the end, it's a business. And we all, no matter what line of work you're in, unfortunately, if the outgo is no longer justifying the income, or whichever way you want to look at it, other way around, then bottom line business, right? That's the biz, Jake. You think they're sending the uh, circle stair people over the Lucas Oil to take down... The picture after well, this. Well, they got to find them first. The people that were supposed to be fixing Monument Circle haven't been seen since March. No, they'll put up the thank you for the memories tag first. Oh, good call. What the, now, oh, here's a better question. <laughs> Who's the next? Well, it's going to be Richardson, right? Richardson's not up there yet, right? No. Correct. He's not Who up is there. it? Nelson, JT. It's Quentin Nelson, Jonathan Taylor, Shaq Leonard, and uh, who's it? Is it Pittman? I think it is Pittman, isn't it? DeForest Buckner. Buckner. Oh, that's yeah. Right. That's right. So it's got, if it's they re signed Pittman, right? Well, it's Richardson. Would you put Richardson up right now? Uh, of course. He's the franchise quarterback. Yes. Even with the missing time? What's that? Even with him missing the year? Yeah. I mean, I'm talking next season. Oh, you're okay. I, well, they got to put the, somebody up right now, right? I'll bet they leave Leonard up. Yeah. They'll just put well, thank you for the memories. How long did stay up there? They'll put thank you for the memories up there for Shaq and then. Until they How big the an insult would it be if they instantly put Zaire Franklin up? Ooh, <laughs> Probably pretty bad. Too. But didn't T.Y. stay up for a, up long, for a long, long time, even after he left? Yeah, he was up there for a while. Oh, well, he never. I guess part of it depends upon what happens to Shaquille Leonard. If he signs tomorrow with the Chicago Bears, he probably comes down. I was going right? to say, you think Eberflus might be interested in just taking a flyer? I mean, he knows he's out of a job. They do have a Good horseshoe point, one, I think. So they could just put a horseshoe there until. Right. The I'll next t- one is made. I tell you what, that guy in Chicago, that guy in the city is getting torched. Eberflus, he is in taking, Chicago. You mean? Oh, he's taking a beating up there. Well, I'm sure. I mean, you're oh, it's unbelievable. Culture. Now, maybe they should just put up a banner that says "2023 Wild Card Participant." That'd work, right? <laughs> that would definitely work. <laughs> That'll be in the rafters. I just put the banner yeah, I mean, out in front of the stadium. It's a pretty big weekend over there. I mean. Put, uh, put up the thanks for the memories in the middle of the state finals. What, what sweatshirt is JMV wearing here? Hey, John. Mousetrap. Oh, the mousetrap. Is that in Broad Ripple-ish? 
It's on Keystone. Keystone, that's right. Yeah. yeah right next to the Meyer, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, John, you seem to have some indication of what the topic was going to be today, but we thought also that the Jim Irsay interview would be of discussion, and lo and behold, that's gone right out the window, right? Oh, well, um, yeah. It's, it's funny. If you wanted to be a conspiracy theorist, depending upon what we see from that Irsay interview later on tonight, again, we've seen bits and pieces, right? Uh, part of those bits and pieces would be uh, throwing out blame at the Carmel Police Department. Um, the other is I don't really care what anybody says, all that type of stuff that people around here would have a negative reaction to. And until I see otherwise, sounds as if it's very ill-advised to say, which kind of clouds the water of, I'm assuming, what the entire interview was about in the first place. And, you know, that's coming back from addiction and what he's come back from. Right. I would say that um, if you wanted to be a conspiracy theorist, you could suggest that putting Shaquille Leonard out in this fashion and waving him would... uh Probably take away from newsworthy items kind from like 10 the, o'clock tonight. It's like imagine. the Friday news dump on a Tuesday. I, right? I just, I just kind of wonder. I mean, we have conspiracy theorists. I am not one of them. But what do you save, guys? What are we saving? Six million dollars for yep. the remainder of the year? Fifty-five yeah. total. Fifty-five. Well, I mean, fifty-five total. How much more do they? How much? Six point one this year. But hold on. How much do they save doing it right now as opposed to doing at it at the end, end of the year? year? Right. Why couldn't you do that at the end of the year? Why did it have to be right now? Was he an issue to the locker room? I, I mean, that's the thing is the the narrative of him becoming more vocal that that spearhead a conversation. You know, I don't know. I, I mean, that's a fair. Why, question. So you, yeah, you don't want somebody that doesn't want to play. I mean, mm-hmm. you would expect him to be more vocal, wouldn't right. he? Uh, so, I, I mean, no argument here. Thoughts right? I have today. Well, you got a couple hours to share them. How's that? Fantastic. JMV is up next. You'll hear that and more. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're back at it at noon tomorrow.